Every welcome to, for your ears only, a James Bond cast. <laughs> Boo puns. Boo. <laughs> that was actually my second take on that one, everybody. <laughs> I mumbled through the first one. It's it's hard to say. For your ears only, a James Bond cast. Not podcast, Bond cast. Um, this is our spinoff from Video Night, the podcast where we discuss four movies Every episode based around a certain subject, actor, director, something like that. Um, Andrew hates the James Bond movies. So, my friend John is on the other side here who actually digs the Bond movies. And I was very glad that I got somebody who was interested because I wasn't sure. Hello, listeners. Yeah, <laughs> I, I I, like the Bond films. I'm not going to go I'm a number one, you know, the number one Bond fan in the world. But I do love these flicks. These are fun. Yeah, well, I, fun. you almost need somebody who loves and hates. Like, people who are hardcore fans, you're going to want to leave right now because we are going to be critical of these films. Um, we're going to discuss what we like about them, but there's going to be stuff that we don't like about them. And there'll be some entries that are terrible, some entries that are great, some that are so bad they're great, and then some that are so good but they're just, like, too dry, too meat and potatoes instead of, like, the flourish that we love about some of the silly ones. It's it's just gonna be an exploration, an eight part exploration of the entire film series, and hopefully by the time episode nine uh, comes out, the new movie will be out, and then that'll pretty much be it for us. So four films per uh, episode. We're going to do the core four, and then we're going to have one episode in the middle where we discuss the films that were inspired by or influenced by the James Bond movies during the uh, craze, the spy craze of the sixties. Yeah, those I can't wait for some of those because there's a few of those I haven't seen, so yeah. I definitely want to check those out. There's almost so many that you're gonna that might actually add another episode to it. But I was thinking like just the pivotal ones, like one of the info, like you know, one of the Flint movies, one of the Matt Helm movies, one of the Palmer movies. Um, people say to watch uh, Danger Diabolic. Um, not sure if that really counts as a spy movie. It's more like an international thief, right? Yeah, yeah, that. Just when you start saying that talent, I have seen that one, and I wouldn't. I mean, it's it does feel like it's influenced by the by the Bond series, but definitely not a Bond film. Yeah. I mean, in a way, I, if I was gonna do lean that far out, I'd say, you know, I know you haven't watched too much in the way of Japanese animation, but heck, uh, watch some of the Loop on the Third stuff. Uh, that's, that's definitely exactly. yeah. Uh, well, we, we saved the animation for Back in Tunes, and, and I was telling Jacob that it's about time that we did Lupin. Um, but I was just thinking, like, there's so many of those movies. And what I love about them, even when they're bad, there's a lot of money put into them. This is when they were really trying to compete with television. You know, they went super wide, you know, 2.35, in amazing colors, and all sorts of daring do that you, you could not film. There was no budget for the kind of high adventure, exotic locations, and special effects. So, you know, TV could not compete, even with, like, the best of their stuff. Even when they were trying to ape James Bond with uh, uh, from Man, uh, The Man from Uncle and Mission Impossible and stuff like that, you just couldn't compete. Yeah, it's there's a, there's a point where it's just, you're as big as the books are, once you try to put these things to film and it's, yeah, you have to have, you know, it's like all the money in the world in order to do some of this stuff because it's so, there's so much that happens. And even what they meant to capture on film for, for many of these films is pretty impressive, especially once you get to the later films. Do, um, have you ever so read yeah, any of the books? 
I have read two of them. I did. I can't remember what the second one was. It was one of the the short story collections, and I forgot. I can't. Just for life, I can't remember what which one that was called. But I have read Casino Royale. Yeah, I mean, there's of course the original books. Uh, but then, you know, throughout the last 30, 40 years, you know, since Ian Fleming is gone, you know, the rights have been up and, and certain publishers will do uh, a handful to a dozen uh, spinoff novels, which oddly, I don't think any of those have ever been turned into a movie. There's been the comic books um, that weren't just adaptations. Some of the independent companies during the 80s and 90s were doing uh, stories that had not been adapted to film. And uh, there's a whole yeah, world out there that just not a lot of people know about outside of the movies. Yeah, they're running. They're running a current series right now of James Bond stuff. Oh, I didn't know that. I Who uh, is Warren it? Ellis? I, I, I believe Warren Ellis is writing them, or else he has been one of the writers on them. Yeah, I, I haven't. I haven't really checked in, but yeah. they look cover-wise, they look really, really nice. You know, I was just thinking of a comic book series that was heavily influenced by James Bond and Danger Diabolic and stuff like that. I know those big epic European movies uh, was Danger Girl. If you remember that series. Oh, yeah. I do remember Danger Girl. And I remember their their captain looked just like Sean Connery. And there's something about Sean Connery that captures the zeitgeist of the man of the 60s, you know? Yes, very much so. It's, I guess maybe we should start uh, dipping our toes into this because mm-hmm. if we're going to talk about Connery, he is, he is the first, our first Bond. It would, of course, exception of the TV adaptation of Casino Royale, but... You know that nobody really considers That's that part true, of the yeah. canon. Yeah, with what I think it was like, I forget the actor, but he was playing Jimmy Bond <laughs> okay. as opposed to James Bond. That makes him more. American, if I remember I guess. correctly. <laughs> uh, you know, it's funny is the opening. Um, I didn't realize the opening for the first handful of films. James Bond is wearing a hat, which is indicative of its time because once you know, I think uh, Lazenby took over. No one's going to wear a hat because that wasn't cool. In fact, by that time, playing James Bond was not cool. Uh, and that, that's part of the hippie era, kind of. Actually, like, the hat. Go ahead. The hat actually, I think it's in Goldfinger. I might be wrong. It's it's in one of the the last ones that we'll be discussing. I know I have a note yeah. somewhere. The hat is actually actually does disappear. Does it? And it was purposefully. Yeah, it, it might be. It might have been Thunderball, but that's the last appearance of the hat. And I think there's like a line where he, because I might have missed it, but I remember reading something about there's a line where he's like, "Huh, I thought I had a hat." And then he leaves. <laughs> All right, so let's start at the beginning. Doctor No. At this point in the books, uh, and I stole this from Dana Gould. His new episode tells a whole story about James Bond. You know, the books were red hot. Critics loved them. And each book, you know, each sequential book was growing in sales. Um, but Dr. No, for some reason, all of a sudden, all the uh, critics reviled it. You know, it, it was selling okay still, but uh, it really had this turning point. I don't, I've never read the book, so I don't know if it's a worse off book than the previous ones. But it's, it's strange that that kind of rejection, that's the first movie that they would do. You think that they would go with a different story. Well, it's, it's because it's the most self-contained. It only takes place in uh, in Jamaica. There's not very many locations for them to travel to. So in testing the waters out and seeing if you can actually make a real franchise out of this, let's use the simplest. I guess that makes sense. You know, it's funny you think about the budgets now for the James Bond movies, which are like $200 million, uh, you know, in that area. That first movie was only a million dollars. Yeah, it and it does kind of show a, a million dollars is 
nothing to sneeze at. Let's let me before I uh, say something, let me walk it back a little bit. It does kind of show that it they didn't have money because there's there are set pieces, there's stuff that happens, but not a lot happens. Again, we're only in a handful of locations. We only have certain you know certain amount of stuff. They didn't. You don't you don't see the extravagance of money on the screen that you see in later films. Mm-hmm. And uh, before we go too far into this, these movies are a product of their time. You know, I hear a lot of stuff now about his behavior, and yes, it's true. In reflection, it's really bad. But, you know, it was a different era. I'm not, I'm not excusing it, but you have to understand where they were coming from, the, the way that people... How do I say this? Uh... Sex relations well, were the, it's weird the, back then. <laughs> yeah, it's he's a manly man. He's a you know, it's expected of him in a way to smack the uh, smack the girl on the butt as we're please leave now. Men are talking. You know, it's there's yeah you can't excuse it by our modern eyes, but you do have to go. But that's the time. Yeah, to it to, wasn't necessarily yeah, to acceptable. ignore it. Yeah. Just so it's like, yes, James Bond is misogynistic and sexist and, you know, anything negative you can attribute to this character probably was there. Right. Do you feel that I'm pretty sure in the book she was racist? Um, it's quite possible. Do you feel like uh, James Bond was borderline sociopath? Is that how he was able to do his job without being emotionally involved? Yes, very much so, because even how even though he's supposed to be a suave debonair character even with you know how you see connery do this it's even very early on the quips someone dies you know and you know they had to attend a funeral <laughs> and a quip you know quip and then walk away shocking you know as someone gets electrocuted yeah that's not normal human behavior <laughs> and um you know everybody says that sean connery is the greatest bond and i'm going to move away from that. He's the first Bond. He set the tone for the movies. He's the the original that you compare everybody else to, but I don't really think that he's the best. Um, I think Pierce Brosnan is slightly better, even though his movies were worse. Yeah, I'll go with that, because if you're going to have someone, again, you go by the trope of gentleman spy, Pierce Brosnan came off more as a gentleman <clears throat> as he's running and doing all his things. It's he had a little more, and again, it's more modern era acting and stuff and style. But yeah, I felt a little more like he, you know, to use the British term, he's posh. You know, it just he felt it felt more like he could get into these situations and interact with all these these high class people and not seem a little off. Right. Whereas. Like Lazenby, and definitely, I like I like Dalton, but no. Yeah, Dalton, definitely, Dalton seemed like our, he was too tough for the room. Like, they would read him from a mile away. Yeah, and our current, and our current Bond is kind of a thug. Mm-hmm. More so than, more so than a suave secret agent. But that's also, again, we go, what's, what's the reflection of the time era? Right. You know, the funny thing about, I, I compare of, Sean Connery to Johnny Carson. I know that sounds weird. But he had that um, everyman quality that I think 
you know, not too much of a brute, not too much of a suave man. He was just kind of someone that everybody could connect to. And like you said, he had the boyish charm, um, very athletic without being muscle bound. So I think I think pretty much everybody could kind of see themselves a little bit in him. Yeah, because he definitely didn't look. Sean Connery doesn't have to me. He's never really had this a movie star look. Yeah. Even even at at his, at the young, good looking, you know, because he is not a bad looking man, but. It's not what I would have ever thought of as a leading man. No, the, the, that's kind of, a kind of especially the, at that time. Yeah, that's kind of the quality of him, though. Is that um, if I remember correctly, he was like a truck driver who became an actor. He wasn't some spoiled, you know, uh, rich boy who took it as a lark, as some actors can do. This is a guy who worked blue collar jobs, and he kind of brings that toughness to the role. Yeah, I mean, he's like he was like a former Mister uh, Mister World or something like that. Really? Or Mr. Scotland. He, uh, yeah, he's a bodybuilder. He doesn't look that big. At, Did he lose at a, a lot of muscle? At the, well, okay. Well, it's a also, again, you go a different time. Oh, right. I forgot. Yeah, we weren't like, taking all sort of HGH and fat burners. <laughs> yeah, he's not, yes, he's not going to look like Schwarzenegger, but he's definitely, he had, he had the muscle and all that stuff to actually win, win some awards and stuff, yeah. which does help because Bond is, even in these older films, is a fairly physical role. All right, so let's get into the plot of Dr. No. Do you want to guide it? Sorry, (laughs) I'm sorry. I'm letting him write this one. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, basically Dr. No, in it, uh, there is a uh, station chief in Jamaica who is uh, murdered, and he's basically kind of watching, in a way, watching over these missile, uh, U.S. missile uh, launches. And with this guy being murdered, there's no one to stop anyone from messing around with these launches. So Bond is tasked to head to Jamaica and figure out what's going on. The problem, and thankfully this is also, as I said, a very straightforward story. Because it seems like everyone in this town is working for the enigmatic Dr. No. And it turns out Dr. No is... A member of a secret society called, oh, called Spectre. Why did I blank on that? That's <laughs> <laughs> the name of a, one of the films, for God's sake. Right. What, what's the one in uh, uh, Mission Impossible? They, they talk about it in uh, the fifth movie. There's, it sounds like it's like Spectre. Um, actually, I have not seen the fifth, the fifth one of those yet. Uh, the fifth one goes back to connecting to the old TV show where they have the, the syndicate. The syndicate. Sorry, that was, oh, a, that was a tangent. Sorry. But yeah. <laughs> But no, no worries. Yeah, it's God. Yeah, there's as I said, not a ton of stuff happens in this film. The first two Bond films are a little more straightforward spy tales, right? It's more character as opposed based to kind of a little more elaborate. Spectral. Yeah, yeah, as or a little more elaborate as they get later on with elaborate plots and things like that. The one thing it does set up is the final set piece where it's a massive headquarters. It always looks like an abandoned warehouse or a factory, and it just has to be the yeah, spy. Like, you know, and then they blow it all up. Yeah, it's an island that has this kind of not necessarily an offshore rig, but but a little rig area as well. Um, I've oh, only seen. I've only I seen to say this. Oh, go ahead. Oh, Doctor No is at least of these first four films. Dr. No is my favorite villain. What's up with the hands? I gotta know. I missed that. Oh, 
he had a uh, there was an accident and his hands are now made of steel. That's kind of uh, cool. Robo hands. Yeah, he's uh, played by Joseph Wiseman, and he just has this voice. Like when he when we're first kind of introduced to him, because he's just a disembodied voice at this point. Just the gravitas that he has is just so so terrifying. Because he, you just hear him talk about, you know, it's like this guy has failed him, and such as, you know, all these things. It's like, dude, this guy's screwed. You're sitting in that chair. You're going to die. Yeah, it's I funny. can just tell just by the voice. Yeah, and you and I didn't realize how many things from the first three movies were used in the first Austin Powers. Everybody talks about Flint and Palmer, oh. but clearly the first three movies there's so many plot points that are picked up and, and put into the Bond film or uh, Austin Powers. Oh, on. It's it's all uh, Thunderball. Thunderball is basically Austin Powers is a remake of Thunderball without anyone really noticing. Well, there's elements from Goldeneye or Goldfinger as well, uh, especially in the third one. Gold member. Yes. <laughs> oh, terrible. Very very obvious. I, I only like the first Austin Powers. I'm going to be straight up right now. The second one, there's no script. They clearly improved all of it. And the third one, I just I didn't. By then, I didn't care. That first one, though, I remember that first one walking out of the theater, going, "That's the dumbest movie I've ever seen." And by the time we walked from the theater back to campus, we thought it was the greatest movie we had ever seen. <laughs> Oh, well, I'll give Goldfinger gets one thing. Its opening is the best opening of the series with the movie within a movie and Steven Spielberg. Oh, right. Yeah. And Austin, and Austin Power having notes about the script and then Spielberg pulling up his Oscar and just saying, you see, my friend here thinks it's good as it is. <laughs> the um, that yeah, yeah, nothing else after that. But that that opening is brilliant. The uh, any other notes on uh, uh, Dr. No before we move on to From Russia with Love? Well, pretty much it's I will say it is the most boring of the films that I saw as well. I got like I almost fell asleep at one point. It's yeah. it drags. I know people are so mad at me <laughs> when is, I said that. They're like that's the best one. I'm like, "Uh, oh, you have more patience than I do, sir." Oh, no, no, no. Dr. No definitely is not the best one. It's not the worst. Is far from the worst. No, no, no. I, from attention from attention span point, it is one of the worst. From plot point and quality, no, because we we're gonna get to some ridiculous ones in the eighties. Uh, I still have no idea what octopus oh God, yeah. is about. Um, but so but from Russia, like the first appearance of yeah. Oh, sorry, you're uh, no, you're uh, got, you got quick, this. Couple of quick things. <laughs> There's a delay, yeah, and I didn't a, know it. Yeah, no worries, man. Uh, first thing is it's uh, the first appearance of Felix, who was a constant uh, character who shows up in the films. His uh, Bonds essentially is CIA uh, counterpart. Who would get uh, we recast? We also get the first appearance and, of Hugh. Yeah, Felix Leiter got recast over and over and over. And I don't understand. Was that just like a running joke that they would replace him constantly? Because I know that they offered Jack Lord further films, but he wanted too much money, so they got rid of him. Yeah, and I kind of, I kind of feel the same way about Felix that I feel about the Bond. Right, I like the idea of it being just the code name. Bond isn't a person necessarily as easily as he is a code, and so every time we get a new Bond, you know, that's a new person, not not just rebooting the series or everyone forgets. I again, I subscribe to that theory, but I do feel the same way about that being Felix as well. Mm-hmm. He's now he's constantly just a new agent and just gets killed off by some, you know, he gets killed off off screen. Now he's got a new Felix. But yeah, it's the first appearance of him. 
Uh, first appearance of Q, even though he doesn't actually uh, go by the name Q, and it's also a different actor. Right. I thought that was uh, odd because I, when I when he shows up in the next movie or Goldfinger, I was just like, oh wait, I'm so used to seeing him. I didn't even notice though that he wasn't in the first movie. Yeah, it's uh, he's a character called Major Boothroyd, who's <laughs> the head of Q Branch, but then uh, that's the only time that character's there. He's never referred to as Q, and that's from you know from the second film on, it's Desmond Llewellyn as Q, and up until they until he died and then end up being recast later on. But yeah, it's also the first, the first actual Bond girl. And I'm not talking about Ursula Andress, although God, that bikini. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but you have, uh, the first actual Bond girl was Sylvia Trench, the girl he met in the, uh, in the casino. And that's, uh, Eunice, uh, Gason, who also shows up in our next film. And that was supposed to be a running joke where, that's his. That's his girlfriend, and then they're trying to do something, and then he gets called away on a mission, mm-hmm. and that only lasts two films. <laughs> Are anything else about Doctor No? I think that is about it for all the most interesting stuff about it. Okay. Other than the also the opening uh, sequence by the guy who's done most of the, the opening sequences. Yeah. But God, does that sequence suck? It, well, I mean, that's before they really got into the elaborate. I mean, that's something you got so conditioned to. Uh, was it Maurice Bender that was doing the opening sequences? Yeah, I should know this. Is yeah, embarrassed. he does that. Okay. Yeah, yeah, that's his first one, and it's it's very '60s. We'll give it that. And it's also but the it's... theme song. The I don't recall there being a theme song in the first two movies. It's Goldfinger, the one that just sticks yeah. out. Is there? Well, there is a. There is a theme song for for uh, for Marshall with Love, but it plays at the end okay. and near the end. So it's it is the theme for the film, but it's not. It, once we get to Goldfinger, that's really once you get what we think of as Bond. Uh, from Russia with Love is it has this weird strong, uh, cult following to the point where we even had a video game adaptation like in 2004, which I was surprised about. And Sean Connery came back for the voice work on that one. And uh, it's a good movie. I still don't consider it like even in my top ten, though I know people who swear by it. It's not bad. It picks up the pace. Um, it has a great villain in Robert Shaw. And it's one of the only movies that's a direct sequel. Like, they've done this like two or three times. Usually with each entry, yeah. they basically yeah. ditch like 99% of what happened in the previous film. Sometimes, you know, uh, Spectre will carry over or... Um, uh, no, you just have Blofeld. Yeah, Blofeld, Blofeld, yeah, Blofeld was in like a, yeah, it was in like four or five of them, and uh, with the exception of okay, so Quantum of Solace was a sequel, a direct sequel to Casino Royale, and Spectre was a direct sequel to Skyfall. I don't think there's any others that were directly like this is like immediately afterward this rolls right into this one, um, but Doctor No and From Russia with Love they flow together. It's just like one long ass story. Yeah, because. Because that, especially how it begins straight out, is them talking about how Bond killed uh, their operative Doctor No. It's uh-huh. One of the very first things in that, and I was I was kind of surprised because I had seen all these films uh, back when they released them on DVD for the first time, and that's how I ended up catching up on every single one of them. And I did never it never stuck in my head that they actually did that. Because it was always just kind of stuff like they were self-contained little stories. Right, like you could jump in without then, having to know what's watching, going on. Yeah, and watching this, that really surprised me. All right, so the plot from, from Russia with Love. I am mushmouth today. Uh, yeah, it's, 
Also very, also very straightforward one, even though this one is a lot more espionage focused. Uh, Spectre is putting the Brits and the Russians against each other in order to steal this uh, device called the Lecter Decoder. They want to get it from the Russians. And this also works in a way that uh, they can also, since they know how Russia and Britain are going to react to it, because they got people in on the inside of both on both sides, they can also use this as an opportunity to kill Bond for uh, killing their previous operator. Mm-hmm. But the, and the idea is that they're going to use a Russian agent who's going to quote unquote defect to the West, and then have her help him steal the Lecter and then steal it from them and uh, kill everybody in one fell swoop. And every, Spectre is happy and Russia and, and Britain just think the others uh, stole, you know, started a big war between the two. And everybody, you know, again, they're happy. I think it's funny. It's James Bond, one of the big things about that is that, you know, it's during the Cold War for most of the series. And... You know, for chunks of it, they, they ditch it, and it's it's kind of weird because you get so conditioned to having them as a backdrop to a lot of this espionage stuff, and it basically starts with this one. What's funny is that Spectre was created because Ian Fleming, at, at the time that he was writing them, felt that uh, Russia and, and the West were going to actually patch things up. He was actually... Banking, banking on peace. That's why instead of having the Russians be the villains all the time, oh no, it's this uh, this shadowy organization that's doing things. Hmm. So it's kind of interesting to see. Like I had always thought of it as, yeah, it's Cold War stuff. Isn't always the Russians, and I think really the Russians are only. I'm going to use the term a little bit loosely, bad guys in like maybe three films total. Really, I think it always uh, feels like it's there, but I guess I'm wrong, huh? Yeah, because I'm thinking in, in thinking about it, I believe it's this one. You have, and again, that's kind of loose, loose villain. Uh, then you have uh, Spy Who Loved Me, and I would say, in a way, Goldeneye, and that's and that's even kind of tenuous at best. Wow, we'll, we'll discover more of this as the series goes on. Because I always thought that they were part yeah, of the, I a could, big part of the picture, like they were always the yeah, overlying. I could be totally. I could be totally wrong on this. It's been a while since I've seen these films, at least some of these older ones. So <laughs> everyone who's listening, if I'm wrong, don't blow up don't blow up the internet uh, telling me how wrong I am. Yeah. Watch me discover and eat my eat my words. Yeah, a lot of it's revisiting the series. This is kind of a discovery for both of us because I've picked and choose you know, random ones to watch over the years, depending on what I could get from the library or whatever was on a, you know, like a streaming service. This is the first time I have ever gone all the way to the beginning and watched all the way, th- well, I'm only on episode one. We could both bail on the next one. I have no idea, but that's the plan is to watch them all in order. Yeah, I, well, I guess we are doing one slightly out of order because we are going to do the uh, the Casino Royale. Uh, kind of, uh, the first Casino Royale, which is a fun Film. Yeah, it's almost like a weird. I've never, a I've, ne- I've never seen it, but I've heard it's just a weird experimentation. Like just whatever they want to throw at the screen, you know. Yeah, it's a Peter Sellers comedy that has James Bond in it, but is as much a James Bond film as like Austin Powers is in like Flint, basically. Yeah. It's like, yeah, it there's there's references to things, and it also, this one has Woody Allen, and yeah, it. 
So there's, I think we're seeing that slightly out of order within these, but again, it's not a, it's not a Bond film, but it has, it has the James Bond character. Right. Um, you know, the first two movies, they were decent sized successes. The first one cost a million. It made 16 in America, but I think like 50 million, uh, 59 million worldwide. The second one, I think made like 23 or 24 million in America, but then, you know, it's up in the sixties. So United Artists is flush with cash right now, and 64 is the year where they really blow up. You know, they have all that money from Magnificent yeah. Seven uh, came, coming in from Europe. You know, James Bond is blowing up. They have, I think, Breakfast at Tiffany's is one of theirs. But 64 is when they release the Pink Panther series, and Goldfinger gets a much bigger budget. They expand the concept. They go international, uh, and the action, the, everything you know about the James Bond series is basically set up in the third one. Yeah, Goldfinger is. I mean, I I do love From Rush with Love. I do think it's a very good film, and it is very much a spy movie. But I think this, from Goldfinger on, that's where they kind of ditch the spy ideas, which is kind of funny because we all everyone kind of thinks, oh yeah, James Bond, he's a super spy. It's like, well, secret agent. Uh, he kind of stopped spying at this point. Yeah, he's now he's just kind of fighting he's an action weird. Star now. Yeah, it's like find weird villains less so than actually dealing with any kind of politics or sneak really having to sneak around. Right. This is when it becomes more comic booky. It's almost as if Ian Fleming knew the rise of the superhero, you know, out of DC in the fifties and Marvel in the early sixties um, was going to change media so that the expectations in the character and the story. Uh, and, you know, and of course, United Artists was like, well, we can't do superhero movies. You can't afford them. So, you know, as the series go on, they just get these crazier, crazier villains, you know, and the gadgets get wilder. Yeah. And this this is so much fun because you have uh, the villain, Orc Goldfinger, is this guy who he's actually he's Donald Trump. Come to think of <laughs> yep, it. Totally. Uh, he's just this petty this petty guy who constantly has to cheat at everything. And like, like I love it. Not only it's how he's introduced where, uh, he's scamming this guy in, uh, in cards and he just ends up getting his, uh, getting his, uh, the person who's helping him gets interrupted and they ruin it. But it's later on, they play golf. The second, the first time bond and Goldfinger actually, face-to-face meet and they're playing golf at this club and you have uh his uh goldfinger's henchman odd job going around with with his with his balls and placing them in in the strategic places that'll help him win the game and it's bond just finds his actual ball hides it and then manipulates it so that goldfinger loses this loses his game even though he's been cheating his way through the entire thing yeah, and his and obsession, just... his obsession with frivolous shit, uh, you know, pretty g- girls that all look the same, they're foreign. Um, I almost wonder if Donald Trump saw this movie as a child and decided to become a real life version of this. <laughs> I think he's super uh, sexy and athletic, was... and he's built like a old bowling ball that's or a bowling pin. <laughs> yeah, oh, man, this is this also has my favorite line in the entire Bond franchise. Which one's that? Where it's uh, Bond's tied up to the thing. He's got the laser coming up to him. And Bond's just like, uh, do you expect me to talk? And Goldfinger's like, no, Mr. Bond. I expect you to die. And then leaves. 
Yeah, there's that no point. Like, there's no interrogation. There's no information he wants. He just wants to. Why doesn't he stay, though? Why does he leave? Doesn't he want the. Oh, it's right, because he doesn't want to get well, his hands dirty. Well, just like Donald Trump. He's. Yeah, he's. At, well, he's like. He's convinced to not to leave because Bond might have information about. Because he's overheard bits and pieces of what Goldfinger's plan is, but he doesn't know what it is. Which is also such a petty plan. Because. You know, everyone thinks about Goldfinger, and I even forgot this detail. It's everyone thinks, oh, yeah, he's going to rob Fort Knox. That's not the plan. The plan was to blow up Fort Knox to make all of Goldfinger's gold worth more money. Right. Because now you remove all the all the world's gold or most of the world's gold. Now his stuff is now going to actually have the price is going to inflate on it. And it's like I'd forgotten that detail. I sat there with. God, that is so brilliantly petty. <laughs> is this uh, the first movie with a uh, body name for one of the Bond girls? Pussy Galore, is that the first time they had a name where you're just like, what, what? Yeah, yeah, that's that's the first time you have any anything. I mean, uh, Ursula Andress was Honey Rider. I said uh, Eunice Gason's character was Sylvia Trench. Uh, the girl from Firm Rush with Love was uh, Tatiana. Yeah, so they're so, all yeah. yeah. The I mean, Honey Rider maybe, but yeah, Pussy Glory is ridiculous. I still don't understand the name of the. Why is that? <laughs> oh. oh, just just because you can get away with that in a book, especially in the '60s, uh-huh. and then someone realized, oh crap, we have to uh, we have to put this to film, and they and apparently that was a fight to actually get her get her name to Pussy Galore throughout the film. And even then, I guess in promotional stills and stuff, she's only referred to as Miss Galore uh, or, sense, a yeah. or Goldfinger's assist, assistant or something like that. Uh, and I'm thinking, like two years later, is when they had What's New Pussycat, and then <laughs> um, yeah, after well, and, and then later on, Octopussy and all that right, stuff. Right. So you kind of the uh, but, this is the one with the villain um, Odd Job with that amazing hat. And it's so iconic to the series is getting the um, the villain henchman with like some crazy power or, or, or some sort of like you know like Jaws is so memorable. So, yeah, some something that's very yeah something that's extremely memorable about them. So that the villain might not be that interesting, but you remember the henchman. You remember Jaws. We remember Odd Jaws. Right. But Goldfinger has an excellent villain and an excellent henchman. Yeah, and that's and that's also why this one has more staying power than most of the other films. Yeah, is you were there's so much about this that again is iconic because this is again the first time we actually have oh well, not the first time we have Q but it's the first time we have Q's gadgets. Oh, and that the car! Workshop. That car is insane. And and to yeah. finish off this episode, I'm hoping I can get my uh, former co-host Ron um, to give you details on the car because that's what we used to do in our old podcast, uh, Full Throttle uh, TV. Um, is he would talk about a cool vehicle from a movie or TV show and break down all the details. So hopefully that's tagged on at the end here. Yeah, the Aston Martin DB5. <sighs> oh, God, that car is so nice. In uh, both, this car. and Thunderball, the gadgets that they put into it are so much fun. Yeah, then let's see. Yeah, there's – this is, uh, you know, again, the first film that had a major the, – the opening sequence and – the Goldfinger uh, track by uh, Shirley Bassey, and even just re-listening to that 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 theme, it holds up so well. Mm-hmm. Although, if you do listen to the lyrics, 
Actually, actually, pay attention to the lyrics. Those lyrics are terrible. Are they? I've never listened to them actually it before. Is, oh, it is the most literal song ever. It's like Goldfinger. He loves gold. Uh, <laughs> it's just it, they're bad. In but the first act, so a girl well, gets and, covered in paint and she suffocates to death. And in the second act, <laughs> pretty much, it's it's it. Uh, I would say uh, go back uh, with the with a uh, subtitle track and look at the and watch the lyrics go by and just yeah. go like, wow, that's <laughs> what. Uh, what's Someone your, got paid to write that. What's your favorite Bond song? Uh, you know what? It's probably would actually be uh, View to a Kill. Thank you, thank Although, you, thank you. I love that one. I didn't I'll, expect you to say that. That I'll, was going to be mine. I will say this, though. I think if I was going to, even as much as like, what do you think of Bond songs? Uh, one of the most iconic sounding Bond songs is the one from Skyfall. Well, I was Just, thinking of, um, think of, who sings that one? Is that the one with uh, Chris Cornell? That's, no, no, no. That's the, uh, that's Casino Royale. Okay. Uh, what it's not Lord, is it? Uh, it it's one of those newfangled young young girl singers. <laughs> well, I know Adele you know? does one of them. It, that's it. That's Adele. Okay. That was it. Lord Adele. Eh. Yeah. Eh, I don't listen to that. But yeah, it's like when I heard that song, and especially with the title sequence, it it evoked so much of what I when I think of Bond. Yeah. That stuff just. It all came together right away. It's like it's not a song I would necessarily want to own. Again, I have, I do have View to a Kill on my Spotify playlist. I do listen to it. I had I had a you CD know, like, with everything up until I think '89 on it. Even though I couldn't tell you what the hell the song was in those two movies. Uh, well, most of them are kind of disposable songs anyway. Yeah. I mean, really, you can only you can name a handful of the Bond songs anyway, like Live and Let Die. Right. Uh, it's simply the best. It's a bizarre not, song. Not simply the best. Uh, yeah. What is the one that Carly Simon's, Simon's saying? It's, it's, nobody oh. does it better? Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and it's like, I mean, there's Garbage did a, did a theme. Yeah. I mean, it's, there's, there's Aha, uh-huh. did one. <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah, they did. I was uh the next one is uh sung by Tom odds. Jones. Now Thunderball um has a big blasting song, Thunderball which is also incredibly stupid lyrics. I still don't understand the name Thunderball. Um and I might be a moron. Is that oh, it's, the bomb? No, I could actually explain that. Okay. Yeah, that is the the descri- what a Thunderball is is the description of a mushroom cloud. It's as the mushroom cloud goes up, you know it's like thunder. You know the thunderous thing of the explosion okay, itself. Okay. That's what that's what the thunderball is supposed to be. The budget on Thunderball is huge in comparison. To, so I think it went one, two, four for Goldfinger, and then eight for Thunderball. And the only problem with Thunderball being bigger budget is, and I didn't think about this at the time because I remember loving Thunderball. I was just obsessed with how great it was. And he told me, oh, it's kind of long. Good God, they spent a long time underwater. They do. This movie could be cut by 20 minutes easily. Oh, it it also has of like when have at this point, let's let's go. Let's not overstate it yet because I might change my mind on this. This also has. So far, the worst pre-credit sequence. I'm sorry, what? Because it has a jetpack, and that's all oh, I care on. about. <laughs> He's escaping by jetpack. It's terrible. That is a horrible thing. 
Oh, it is so bad. How did he? It, it's it's a how... real stunt. Yeah, it's but... a real stunt. I I give the guy credit for actually flying away on a jetpack. Mm-hmm. Nope, you know. But it's it looks bad. Everything leading up to it is not good. It's just I'm sort of going like, wow, did they they really got that bad that quick, huh? Because that. That reminds me of just some fucking Roger Moore shit. Yeah, that's you know, it, it, later on. That was that first sign. I think I think Sean Connery, if I remember correctly, was talking about. He goes, he knew that things were up when Thunderball came out. He was like, oh, we've gone too far now. Yeah, it's. I think Thunderball is all right. I am not in love with it. I do I do respect because a, a lot of it is underwater and doing that stuff is is taxing, and it got an Oscar for doing for doing that kind of stunt work. Mm-hmm. So. There's there's some good stuff, but it's also yeah. And watching this, I'm just seeing everything about it being Austin Powers. Uh, the opening the opening title sequence was completely parodied by Spy Hard and Weird Al. Uh, it's like I, watching it now is after seeing all the Austin Powers films really hurt this film for me because it just everything about it is. Was been, has been parodied, right? And this is this is when um, we're getting real close to seeing Blofeld. You know, you see him. Is there a silly sequence where you just see like the bottom half of him sitting at a desk, and then they have all the people at the oh, table? Oh yeah, it's that. Yeah, that's that's where he's got like his uh, all the uh, his his henchmen and stuff, and he's doing all the things. Yeah, you look at like the bottom half of him. Is in, is in frame and everything else is like hidden behind something else. That just seems a ridiculous choice to make. Um, so this one's about a, a bomb that just goes missing and you know it's stolen from uh, a military plane and, and then the plane's dropped underwater and they have to come down and get the missiles or whatever and James Bond's been tracked them the entire way. Here's the problem with it. Um, you said the first two are streamlined and they're boring. The problem with Thunderball is and it starts that curse of the James Bond movies that are all over the place with the story. Instead of one streamline, you know, where every task leads to the next thing, I feel like a yeah. lot of it's just meandering. It's just like we got the money, why not film it? Let's let's add this to the story. Yeah, it's yeah that that is definitely the thing. Is this one is a kitchen sink film? They had their they could do whatever they wanted at this point, and they did. So it's. Yeah, <laughs> it's, yeah, it's, I don't want to knock it because I know a lot of people love this film, but yeah, it's just, it's a, it's a Bond film. <laughs> it's definitely not, I would say, it, I aside from it being parodied, which I didn't remember, and remembering just a lot of it being underwater, again, it's, I never, I don't feel that like this one is iconic, even though, as I said, it's like, it's been parodied to death. Right. Which is weird. Well, here, and here's the weird but thing, this is, a, is that it was remade less than 20 years later because of some weird rights issue where uh, they split off and somehow the other guy, I can't remember his name, not Bacoli, but the other guy got Halt Saltzman or something like that, ended up getting the rights to remake Thunderball. So that's why we get Never Say Never Again in 83 with updated video game graphics. <laughs> I am... I honestly, I'm kind of curious to see that again now. Because I, like, I knew it was a remake, but having watched this one, I really want to see that to see if it is a little more streamlined. Yeah, well, I mean, Irvin Kershner was an excellent director. Of course, he directed the best Star Wars, in my opinion. Of course, I think most people agree that Empire is at least top three. Oh, yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, I think he was probably a, a lot tighter with the story. Let's see. But this does have a couple of... Uh, 
uh, firsts. This is actually the first Maurice Bender title sequence. Okay. So this 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 is the first after Doctor No, I should say. So you had had from Rush with Love, which was kind of just straightforward. Same thing with uh, Golden Eye. Golden Eye's you know on all the words on the bodies and stuff. But then this is the first time they're doing all the uh, the silhouettes of naked girls and stuff as they're swimming around and doing things. You know, it's funny, as I'm looking at the so, directors, yeah. and I forgot about this, is a lot of these directors, they would only really be known for the James Bond movies, and they'd always do, like, these lower-budget European films that were trying to compete. That doesn't really happen with the James Bond directors now, because it seems like all those guys seem to go on to better things. But I'm looking at, you know, Terrence Young did the first uh, two, and, uh, you know, he ended up doing, like, Italian flicks with Charles Bronson. They didn't go anywhere. Goldfinger, I think it was Guy Hamilton, who, I, honestly, I could not yeah, tell you what he did. On that. I believe he was asked to come back for uh, Thunderball, and I think it was because Goldeneye, if I'm remembering this correctly, he was asked to come back. Goldeneye was such such a nightmare to shoot that it's just like, no, 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 I can't, I can't do another one of these. I love that when I type in Goldfinger on Wikipedia, it gives me the band first, <laughs> and then asking, do you want further? Yeah, I'm trying to see Guy Hamilton. I'm sorry, I'm just meandering on here. Uh, fin- uh, go ahead with the Thunderball. I apologize. Okay, well, but yeah, aside from it being the first uh, Bender title sequence, this is also the first time that you actually had uh, the actor who plays Bond in the gun barrel scene. So you had so first time Sean, first time you have Sean Connery actually walking up and shooting the gun, which then also goes into the first time that when the gun barrel, you know, are unknown shooter is falling and you see the gun barrel kind of go down it's also the first time that gun barrel reveals that opening sequence okay so so yeah it's a cup this one definitely also has a couple of those firsts there was also one thing i looked up and i thought was kind of interesting were uh, other potential themes aside from the tom jones one apparently johnny cash recorded a thunderball song holy shit that would have been i we, and, and uh, really yeah. I want to hear that. I've, <laughs> I did not know this, and now I have to look it up. Uh, there was also uh, Dion Warwick's Mr. Kiss Kiss Bang Bang was a potential uh, theme for the film. Yeah, no. So That must be was, our job. That needs to be our job. We need to end this series with finding a clip of uh, Johnny Cash singing Thunderball. <laughs> yeah, if it exists, I well, if, I'm sure it exists, but if it's been released physically, I want to see it. I want to hear it. Uh, Guy Hamilton, who had directed yeah. Goldfinger, I just want to say real quickly, he directed another uh, influenced in a way by Bond uh, was uh, the Destroyer novels was uh, adapted into Remo Williams' The Adventure Begins in 1985, and sadly only one film. That's right. That's right. Oh man, I yeah, because I remember I was working in a bookstore when I when I came across those, and then someone had mentioned that, and I ended up watching one. Oh. And it was like kind of surprised. I liked I liked Remo Williams. Yeah, and there was a TV series, I guess, of it. But um, you you feel a lot of um, you know what? Let's see if we can add that to one of our little conversations later because uh, clearly there had to have been an influence uh, f- uh, for Remo Williams from the James Bond series. It's like an American uh, blue collar version of James Bond. Yeah. Oh, I do have to, also one thing I found interesting was one of the few times I saw Bond actually scared of something was in this film and there's a point where he's given a uh, radioactive tracker pill and oh right yeah he is 
he is freaked out at the idea of actually swallowing this thing. And I, I thought that that was definitely a very interesting humanizing moment for this character. And which is needed because at this point, you know, I think a lot of people were having trouble connecting to him because he was like a disconnected murderer, <laughs> just gun for hire. Uh, not gun for hire, but you know what I mean. Um, assassin for His Majesty's Secret Service. And having yeah. those moments, it, 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 it would progress throughout the series, especially with, um, uh, actually with On Her Majesty's Secret Service when he got married and then his wife died, so like that. There's little moments, and there's stuff like that in Skyfall and Casino Royale that was necessary to, you know, more than him just being a one-dimensional character. Yeah, that's that's also I think when we get to when we get to those films, even though I've referred to him as a thug, there is at least a little more of a human being in that thug than there is in some of these other characters because yeah there's even i love i love pierce Brosnan, but he does also as much as i think he's a gentleman spy he does also come off as very detached from everything you know just things you know things happen he does not seem to realize the gravity of some of these things happen right well i mean i guess it keeps you from having um fear you know keeps you from trying to save the day true true because he does have to he is constantly having to uh, deal with nuclear Armageddon or some, you know, some something massive yeah. that uh, crops up. So after a while, yeah, I would think you would get a little dead, dead to what's happening. The uh, the villain in this, Adolfo Selly, um, you might also know him from Diabolic, and oddly enough, he was in a parody uh, ripoff. Uh, James Bond called O.K. Connery, a.k.a. I think uh, Kid James Bond or uh, Little Brother James Bond. I know there was another name for it, but it literally stars James Bond's little brother, Neil. Yeah, never never heard of that one. It was, it's on Mystery <laughs> Science Theater. It's that, the only way to watch it. Okay. It, yeah, it just it sounds bad. Yep. So, but, but then again, could it really be any worse than the uh, James Bond Jr. cartoon series that came out in, like, the 90s? Eh, I'm okay with that one. Um, here's This is the funny thing about O.K. Connery, is it stars Neil Connery as Dr. Neil Connery. Uh, <laughs> 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 oh, my God. That's oh ridiculous. God. <laughs> oh, man. Um, this is also the uh, first. We might of the have to do that too. We might, um, but we will have to watch the the Mystery Science Theater version. Uh, Thunderball. Uh, one of the final notes I want to say here is it's the first film shot in Panavision, and I am a hardcore 2.35, uh, super slim, ultra wide. I just love the look of it. Yeah, there's there's definitely something, and what's nice about, and also especially with later on films too, they know how to fill the frame. That like, as as long as these underwater sequences are, you can't, you cannot, you know, say that they do not try to make the biggest, you know, the most scope that you can mm-hmm. with all that stuff. Especially the big, the fir- the big fight that they have with like, God, like two armies essentially, because I think it's like the Brits and, or is it the FBI? Uh, you know, like one of the, one of the things versus the uh, versus the Spectre agents, and it's just considering that it's underwater and everything's slow, it's still you know feels massive and epic of a fight. All right, so I think that brings us to the end of this episode, and we'll be back next month with uh, the next four films. John, thank you very much for joining me for the series, and I hope everybody out there listening 
will stick with us for the whole run. Yeah, can't wait, can't wait to see the next one because I believe we have uh, our Magic Secret Service in this next one. And yeah, so the next I four, remember it being my favorite film. Uh, yeah, it's really great. Um, so yeah, the next one is You Only Live Twice. Then we're gonna throw in that Casino Royale um, because that's sixty-seven. And then goes on Her Majesty's Secret Service. Then Diamonds Are Forever, the one that I've still scratched my head over what exactly is going on. Hopefully, as an adult, I will figure this out. I probably won't. The two movies like that where I have no idea what's going on. Uh, that one and Octopussy where I'm just like, okay, I've seen this eight times. What are we doing again? What is this about? <laughs> well, that especially especially with the Roger Moore ones, that's I, I honestly feel that's most of the Roger Moore films. Just kind of, what's happening? Why? Why is he in clown makeup? <laughs> Fabergé eggs? I, I, what? Why is he now? Why is he now on the moon? Why is Maude I, Adams I, I in this one? It. Wasn't Maude Adams just in like? <laughs> wasn't she in Live and Let Die or The Man with the Golden Gun? How is this possible? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but yeah, it'll definitely get interesting once we get into a little more uh, the Roger Moore era. All right, everybody. We are on it's, Facebook. Uh, oh, sorry. I thought you were done. I apologize. Oh. Uh, we're good. We're good. Okay. Um, there's a delay, everybody. Sorry. There's a thing where I, he thinks I'm done. And I think I'm done. Um, uh, check us out on Facebook under Video Night Podcast. You'll find all our episodes there. If you have any comments, hit me up on Twitter under Retro Rocket Entertainment. That is the banner site for all of our podcasts. And thank you very much, and have a good night. Good night, everybody. So if we're going to talk about Bond cars, we must first start with the definitive Bond car, the Aston Martin DB5. This is the iconic car that's always, um, when you hear Bond, you think Aston Martin DB5, right? That's a little odd, and I'll get more into that a little bit later as to why this is considered so iconic. Uh, first off, let's start off with some regular specs. Uh, the model was pre the actual Aston Martin DB5 was created between, uh, was manufactured between 63 and 65. It had a 4.0 liter straight six that put out 288 foot-pounds of torque at 3,850 RPM. It came with a four-speed manual and was also available in a three-speed automatic. Uh, the power in uh, U.S. terms is 282 horsepower at 5,500 RPM, and it could do a top speed 143 miles per hour and a zero to 60 at about 8.1 seconds. Not exactly the fastest car for its time, when it was going up against the likes of the Ferrari 250 GTO or the Jaguar E-Type. Uh, they were faster, but this car was snazzier. This was a luxury sports car, where the others were more visceral. As far as the specs go for uh, the Bond car itself, it had a retracting screen that came up behind the rear window to uh, keep you from getting smacked in the back of the head from a speeding bullet. It had bulletproof windows, a smoke screen, an oil slick, tire slashers, GPS unit well before its time, two Browning machine guns uh, that popped out from underneath some lights in the front, and of course it had an ejector seat. Its first appearance was in Goldfinger, driven by none other than Sir Sean Connery, the first and, in my opinion, the best man to don the name Bond for film. They used two cars for Goldfinger, an actual DB5 for glamour and high-speed shots, and a DB4 prototype that was outfitted to look like the DB5. They used this car for the gadget car. Um, they originally, they put a lot of effort into the gadget car, and they did not want to screw this up for anything, so they had an actual DB5 for the high-speed shots and what have you, uh, just so they didn't mess up their, 
their pride and joy. It then went on to appear in six more Bond films up to current day. Although it is considered an iconic pairing between itself and 007, the DB5 only appeared in two films in the first 40 years of Bond movie history. It reappeared again in 95's GoldenEye, and only then would we see it, or another iteration of it, rather, in the films. And by that I mean, in GoldenEye, the DB5 shown is Bond's personal car. Uh, somewhere I read, uh, and I'm not sure on this, I haven't been able to verify it, whether it's in the books or not, but apparently Bond purchased the car uh, for his own purpose uh, vehicle. Although this car is his personal vehicle, it doesn't have all the gadgets that the normal Bond car would have, although it does have a champagne cooler in the armrest, as well as a teleprinter that looks like a CD player. Uh, the DB that was numbered BMT216A, which is the original one that was in Goldfinger, is the same car that prior to appearing in Goldfinger made its first screen appearance in The Saint. I believe it was a different color at that time, the original red or something like that. Uh, it also appeared in The Return of the Man from Uncle Movie, where George Lazenby once again takes on the role of Bond, or JB as his license plate says, uh, to help a colleague in need. It also appears in 1981's The Cannonball Run. Great movie. If you haven't seen it, where have you been? Anyway, in this movie, it is writ it is driven rather by Roger Moore, playing a character named Seymour Goldfarb Jr. Wonderful name, who thinks he is Roger Moore. Like I said, great movie. Um, and actually, the more I read into it, there's not seven movies that this this car has been in. It's actually eight. And the reason I didn't know that is because I have not yet seen 2015 Spectre. Uh, and throughout this movie, apparently it's in restoration in Q's workshop. And as I have not seen it yet, I can't verify all this. But there is a scene on YouTube that includes the line, There's just one thing I need. And in it, Bond is seen driving off in the DB5 with what sounds like outro Bond music playing. And I couldn't think of a better way to exit this little segment. So until next time, enjoy. I thought you'd gone. I have. There's just one thing I need. Hey everybody, it's another episode of For Your Ears Only, a James Bond cast. 
the podcast where we just explore like the whole world of James Bond and all the spinoffs and ripoffs and clones and parodies. Uh, eight episode series, so we're not going to go like too elaborate with the parodies because there's way too many of them in ripoffs. There's like a thousand Italian ones. I'm your host, Michael, and the other side is John. How's it going, listeners? All right. Uh, we discussed the first four movies. That's how we're going to do it. We're going to block it in four movies. Uh, throwing in some oddballs there uh, when there's some of the... I don't know, sometimes it feels like there's a little bit of a dry area in the James Bond series where there weren't so many films, so I just kind of sparsed out the film. So this episode is going to be You Only Live Twice, Casino Royale, I know it's not canon, but it's still technically a James Bond movie, On Her Majesty's Secret Service, and Diamonds Are Forever. So let's get started with You Only Live Twice, and I don't remember what it's about because I marathoned like 12 of the movies within a week, and I know it's set in Japan. And there's a lot of martial arts. That, yeah, it's basically Bond has to stop war between the U.S. and Russia when uh, Spectre begins uh, spacejacking spacecraft. That's right. I, oh God, I also have that confused with Thunderball because don't they also have kind of a like they're they're stealing Spectre steals the big missile and they put it underwater and yeah, lots of stealing missiles and rockets yep. and bombs in these series. Yes, yeah, Spectre really ha- seems to have that. Uh, that, that that seems to be their mo is steal steal a nuclear weapon uh, or something and then hold the world for hold the world uh, for ransom. Yeah, um, this is the one with Donald Pleasance as Blofeld, and um, we were just discussing Donald Pleasance yesterday because we were discussing the Halloween movies. And unbeknownst to my sister, she didn't realize what she was saying when she said, it's all about DP, DP rules, DP. And I was like, do you not know what that means? You should stop saying it right now. She's like, what? Donald Pleasant's rules. Yeah, that's. <laughs> yep. Yeah. No, that, no, no. That, that's, that's not good. Yeah. And it's the first time we've actually seen him, uh, you know, because usually it's just like, Here's the weird thing. Is it, don't you think it's strange? I think it was in Thunderball where they only show his lap. Like, why is there a wall covering the rest of him? I mean, you can still shoot him in the balls. I don't know what he's hiding his face for. Well, because the mysterious number one has to be mysterious. Only his his main lackeys should know who what he looks like. Everyone guess, else can, you know, can go kick rocks or whatever. Right. It's harder to track a man you don't know what his face looks like. So I'll give you that. Plus... Uh, in, in the in next movies, he's played by a different actor in each one, and it's really strange. Like, Donald Pleasance was too busy? Is that? No? No? They just wanted to change? Okay, gotcha. No. Well, no, actually, part of one thing I did read about that was Donald Pleas- they didn't want Donald Pleasance in the later ones because they didn't think he could handle any of the action. No, he couldn't. I mean, he's a butterball. Not, not fat, but, I mean, he's shaped literally like blocks of meat he doesn't uh, we'll get to it here and i'm actually secret service but blofeld gets in on the action this one he's mostly just sitting in his chair yes and his weird eye thing going it's this is this is where where mike myers picked up his uh, dr evil because it's very much just all pleasant being blofeld yeah this is the one um they really started to dive into exotic locations I mean, I know they went all over the place in other movies, but this is where they really like, we're going to set this whole thing here. We're going to explore this whole culture, what everything looks like. And it's, I think it's starting to give you more of an idea of the scope that the James Bond movies could have with a decent budget. Yeah, and this, and with, with this one also, it's, uh, I think this is definitely one of the ones where people even, not, I wouldn't say at the time, but 
this is one of the ones where if you're going to talk about a problematic Bond film, this one definitely has the uh, the biggest issue if someone's going to ha- talk about uh, cultural appropriation, I guess would be the, the term for this. Yeah, yeah. Where they make Bond Japanese. <laughs> yeah, that was awkward. Really weird. Sort of. <laughs> yeah, it's... Yeah, it's just kind of... Wow. <laughs> Do you think it's weird this is written by Roald Dahl? I I was... Uh, when I saw that, I went, really? And then I, I looked at trivia for this, and aside from the fact that he thinks this is the best... Not the best thing he's ever written for the screen, but the what? most accurate... Accurate... It, he feel, it, if I remember right, he felt this is the most accurate portrayal of what he wrote to screen Hmm. out of everything that he ever did okay this thing actually turned out turned out exactly as he wrote it okay i guess that because a lot of a lot of his books were changed later on when they were movies yeah and even stuff that he wrote just kind of never exit he never felt that it was what he wrote yeah, uh, well, even as like a screenplay. I think he would be astonished at how close they've stuck to his works um, post his, you know, his death. I mean, he died in 1990, and the only thing I think had come out that was even close to being like his book was The Witches, but that was like really close to the end. So I don't even know if he even saw it. But you know, the remake of the Charlie the Chocolate Factory didn't fix anything either. That was still fucked up. But James the Giant Peach, Matilda, BFG, uh, what's the Fox movie? The one that. Um, Wes Anderson did. Uh, Fant- oh, uh, Fantastic Mr. Fox. Yeah. Um, I, th- I think he did a lot of television, too. But this is kind of cool that he kind of went out of the fantasy realm. Well, no, James Bond is still fantasy. But you know what I mean? Like, there's a different yeah. style of fantasy in this one. Well, in the case of this, and I kind of agree in the thought, he basically said it's a formula. You can't really mess it up because Bond does this. He sleeps with this girl. He meets this girl. He sleeps with this girl. And then he gets the final girl. It's just kind of like... A very, he saw it as okay. As long as these beats are met, I, you know, they can't mess it up. Yeah, but you can you can kind of feel that Sean Connery's tired now. I, this looks like he was ready to walk right out the door halfway through the film. He's just like, oh god, I'm done. Apparently, they paid him garbage for no, most movies. Yeah, there's a lot of this film that feels that way. I mean, how can you have Nancy Sinatra sing your theme and it's boring? Yeah. I don't know. It just feels like everybody phoned it in. Thunderball was all about excess, you know, and everything was huge and lavish. And yes, we both agree that the swim scenes took on way too long. Like, oh, this is a 20 minute scene. It could have been five. But it just feel like everything was just limping along and you only live twice. I know some people love this one, but I do feel like it's one of the weaker bonds. Um, Diamonds Are Forever is the strangest one. I still have no idea exactly what it's about, but you only live twice. Just it's almost necessary that he had to walk away. Yeah, and and it's kind of interesting because some of the stuff in this, like uh, you have uh, the Bond girls, uh, where you have uh, Mie uh, Hama, who is a and never we never learn her name until you see the credits. She who she plays is uh, Kissy Suzuki. Okay, and uh, the other girl, uh, what's her name? Uh, Aki, I think it is. Can't remember the. Uh, I had it written down, and I can't. Yeah, uh, Aki. Played by Akiko uh, Wakabayashi. Uh, both these ladies were actually in a film that you might know. Uh, it's called uh, Kagi no Kagi, uh, 
translated as Key of Keys. You know it as What's Up, Trigger Lily. I knew you were going to say that, which is a perfect segue. If you're ready, if not, we'll wait. <laughs> uh, let's see. If Yeah, I don't think there is really much we really need to go over this. It just, it it's a Bond movie. Uh, I do also like the fact the two, that these two ladies were also in uh, King Kong versus Godzilla. Oh, nice. The one yeah. thing they screwed up with uh, that, just, they screwed up with the later... Uh, I don't know. I always thought the costume sucked, even though the idea itself, King Kong versus Godzilla, is amazing. Um, but I always thought that the choice they did with the costume was just like, oh, that looks really, really bad. Yeah, it's it's a terrible ape costume. <laughs> but it's also they love you know it's kind of even though God, if I remember right, Godzilla loses. Uh, well, they it, still it, have think, more love for Godzilla against theirs. Yeah, I think what it is is uh, here King Kong wins. Over in Japan, they shot different footage where Godzilla wins. Okay, I've I've never seen that version of it, and I'm pretty certain I'd seen. Well, I'm I'm curious. Are you a kaiju yeah, fan? Very much so. Oh, we got very our next much. show after James Bond because I've been wanting <laughs> desperately to do a kaiju show, and the guy who was really big into it, a friend with, uh, he just too busy. He's a teacher. He never has the time. And I'm like, dude, Godzilla's coming up next year. We got to get this. Like, This whole year has been like kaiju crazy. We could have done it this year. So you know what? We're going to talk after this. We're going to get you some Godzilla action going on, some Mothra and some Gamera. And who who nice. doesn't want to talk about a fire bla- uh, ass-blasting uh, turtle? <laughs> oh, come on. Uh, everyone knows that the best uh, monster is Gigan, the giant chicken with a, oh, with a rotating buzzsaw on his chest. Yeah. Um, so it's for me, but, You Only Live Twice might be the most uninteresting of all the Bond movies. Now, I'm excited to talk about the next one because it is a disaster. Uh, I've never seen it before. Oh, I have... Yeah. Go ahead, what? I'm sorry, I, I have to... I do have to say one thing about this because oh. you might find this fascinating. Uh, with this film, those rocket pistols uh-huh. and the cigarette rockets, those were real. What? That was product placement. Oh my God. Those were real things and they sucked. The, it was too expensive. Like all the ammo for it was just cost way too much, and it was completely inaccurate and unreliable. So it's like they were trying to make these things out to be the best thing ever, and the second that uh, people actually got it out of a film, they went, "Wow, this blows. <laughs> we're not going to invest in this." And the company folded like two years later. Oh my god, that's crazy. Uh, I'm sorry that I jumped ahead. Were you ready? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That, yeah. There, I have a couple of things, but that. They, no, no. Everyone could look that stuff up. It's okay. just little minor bits of trivia. Um, and I, I apologize. Yeah. I kind of jumped into the next one because I'm eager to discuss this head scratcher of a film. Um, we kind of teased it earlier. Casino Royale with Woody Allen. Um, and uh, yeah, oh, what the hell happened? I feel like it was three movies mushed together. Uh, <laughs> I, yes, that, that was exactly my thought. Is It's basically three different Bond films, including the Casino Royale story just kind of thrown together. Uh, I usually write down a, a simple little plot synopsis at the end of these things. Uh-huh. And nope. <laughs> well, I mean, there's... <laughs> because okay. I can't really make kids or tales. The chunk that we know... Thing. The chunk that we know that is Casino Royale is maybe 18 minutes of this two-and-a-half-hour movie. I mean, I kept waiting for what I know of Casino Royale to show up, and it's like way, way into the film. And all of a sudden you're like, oh, is, is the ship riding after it's already hit a couple icebergs? I don't know what's going on here. Uh, it will, part of it is the film was directed by like what? One, two, three, four, 
five different people. Oh. So that definitely turns into a mess because you have John Houston, Ken Hughes, uh, let's see, uh, Val Guest, uh, Robert Parrish, and Joseph McGrath all did basically scenes. That's like, so stupid. Anything that, yeah, all the stuff that was at the beginning uh-huh. uh, in, in Scotland was John Houston. Ken Hughes did the Berlin stuff. Uh, Val Guest did all the stuff with Woody Allen and David Niven. Oh, David Niven was supposed to be the original James Bond. We got cheated out of an awesome Bond. No, we didn't. That what guy are you talking is about? As, dude, that guy is that guy is a is actually the best thing of this film. Oh, I disagree. And I mean, I'm not gonna like, I'm not gonna go. Oh, he'd be running around doing all the, you know, things. But I'm just sitting there watching, just going, now that's a guy I could actually buy as a, as an actual spy. Like he, if they wanted to maintain an actual spy fiction. Yeah. I honestly think he would have. He's not an actual. He, he came not, off. Yeah. Yeah, it's like he's not an action star, and that and that would definitely everything that we think of Bond would be one hundred percent different if he was. So I'm not going to say no. How dare how dare they uh, pass over him? But I do kind of feel that we, in an alternate world, we might have a lot more inter- We might have a lot more interesting Bonds. And I also don't think it would have lasted as long as it did because you know okay, think about it. What well, Colin Firth, you never expected that. In Kingsman, so I'll give you credit for that yeah. one. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's, we, we again, it's a pot. It's yeah. Sorry. No, no. It yeah. It just it's the weird possibility of that, and I just kind of felt this guy's way too good for this movie. <laughs> well, I mean, Peter Sellers is a genius, but he's a, a damaged genius. I'm a huge fan of his, even though I have to say most of his movies are not very good. He's always amazing in because he's working his ass off. But the movies always seem to be subpar. So I don't know if the, the studios didn't know what to do with him, so they just gave him scripts. They're like, I, no one else wants this. Um, or he just made bad choices. Well, I I have a feeling probably at this point, uh, this in the case of this film, it's ego because he got fired off this movie. Wow. He, that's basically kind of why – it's why there's not – he kind of shows up, disappears, uh, literally disappears at the end of the film. Like, I mean, not just when he gets killed, but there's there's that whole segment where he's going off to do something and then all of a sudden he's captured. And there's no transition between this these two things. It's just I'm I'm giving chase. I'm captured. Yeah, I just think like in 64 was his big breakthrough, which is only three years prior to this. He had Dr. Strangelove, the first Pink Panther and the second The Shot in the Dark, all huge hits. And he must have been in demand. In the next few years, there's some decent stuff in there. After the Fox um, is one of my favorites. But by 67, 68 is when it's starting to teeter. I think the only other good thing he did was um, there was a girl in my soup with Goldie Hawn. And then it just kind of just fades away. Most of them were independent productions um, that were just eager to have a name they could sell a film with. Because I've, I've heard and I read in his biography that... Um, that he was insanely difficult to deal with. And then all the stress that he was, the manic behavior was actually destroying his heart. Yeah. Well, I said, that's also part of this uh, with, with Sellers and Orson Welles. Sellers got Orson Welles into this film. And then apparently they hated each other. Oh, I'm not surprised. Which is why they were, they were never on screen. You're, you never see them on screen together. Oh, wow. I didn't even think Every of that. Every time. Yeah. It's like anytime you, cause like you'll see Orson Welles in the foreground and, Back, you know, the back of a person's head, and 
you know, again, obviously through cross cutting, you assume it's this, but yeah, they were never on this. They were never on set together at any point. I'm curious as to how they sold this movie because it's not part of James Bond canon. It's a spoof of it. And yet somehow they made this very expensive movie. I think in fact, it was the most expensive of all the Bond movies at that time somehow convinced people to show up and it was a huge hit 41 million dollars and yet if it came out today you know with all that pre kind of like oh this is a piece of shit rotten tomatoes it would have made um probably 4.1 million in today's money <laughs> well this thing uh because i saw the trailer for it and they basically sold it like you know things like it's a mad mad world and all these things where it's take a look at our cast we have everyone yeah and then they also kind of ruined the joke where it's like they're playing James Bond. Yeah, if I look at the credits, I so. feel like there's 12 James Bonds. And yes, you're right. That final sequence when everything goes crazy was kind of a cliche of movies at this time. Um, and, and it's all because of Mad, 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 Mad World. Um, I think I said the right amount of mads. Um, like the night they raided Minsky's and stuff like that where it was just uh, – what's the other one? Uh, Who's Minding the Mint? Um, it always seemed like these movies with big casts and always descended into madness at the end. Yeah, it's just it's a huge ensemble, and one thing I was thinking of was, and granted, even by especially by the by the point of the film I'm gonna I mention, it's as Kenny said, it's been done to death. But that last uh, fight, Blazing Saddles, it ain't. No, no. Um, yeah, because just like the manicness of any of these kind of weird, you know, over the top end endings, yet there's. It's completely confusing. You can't really follow anything that's happening. No, well, and none of the jokes work. There's, I, I feel like the entire movie is insanely unfunny. Except I do kind of like Woody Allen during this time period. Basically, before he started like uh, Andy Hall, I feel like is when he started getting um, not wacky. He started getting you know more grounded and serious and more critically acclaimed. Um, that's when I get bored. I like the wacky stuff. So the, the, the few minutes that he's in is the villainous nephew, Jimmy Bond. I thought were hilarious. Yeah. It's, it is a weird, it's a weird casting choice too. At that, you know, just kind of, you have, you know, again, all these very British people and then neurotic Woody Allen just kind of <laughs> doing his little thing. Well, this is right after um, MGM made a ton of money off of What's a New Pussycat with Woody Allen and Peter O'Toole and uh, Peter Sellers. And Peter O'Toole actually has a cameo in this, which I didn't see, but I see it here on the uh, Wikipedia. Let's see. Oh, God. Yeah, I don't, I don't think I caught that either. Yeah. But this, was, this is one of those films that they throw so much at you that you can't. It, it's a cacophony of noise. Yeah. Did you happen All to notice Jacqueline Bissett when uh, maybe her first role is a, astonishing? I couldn't believe how how much she looked like Elizabeth Hurley in Austin Powers. Yes, uh, playing Miss Good Thighs. <laughs> is that really? That wasn't. I, they always have a cheeky name, don't they? Sometimes you have to roll your eyes, like, ugh, really. Yeah. The, well, there's also like uh, there was a, and I kind of I did kind of appreciate the. Uh, when uh, they're captured, it's uh, Doctor Noah. Yeah, <laughs> kind of. I kind of appreciated that. Yeah. Uh, that was the alter ego of Jimmy Bond. The uh, uh, is there any notes or any uh, comments you want to make before we move on to the next one? Uh, not so much. I I think we got everything on that one. Yeah. Again, just 
that one's just insanity. It's a, it's a curiosity at best, and it's it's right that it's kind it's, of disowned. What it is is it's perfect for what did we just watch? Yeah, oh my god, yeah, totally. That's um my friend Andrews, our mutual friend Andrews podcast that he does, where he'll choose a head scratching weird movie and try to make sense of it all. Yeah, that. That would be interesting to hear him talk about. Yeah, and you're on there a lot, so Anyone. you might want to comment. You might, since yeah. you've already seen, you might save yourself some time and, and uh, hey, watch this crazy thing. I'll give it a shot. We'll see what happens. The, He's yeah. definitely very controlling on that, though. So true, we'll, true. We'll see. <laughs> um, the next one we're going to discuss is back to canon. Is on Her Majesty's Secret Service, which for a while felt like it wasn't considered canon because nobody respected George Lazenby. It was the one oddball movie that didn't fit in. But I'm going to count it in my top five. It is one of the best. I don't think Same George Lazenby is that great. He's okay. It's the movie itself that is amazing. I think – well, I honestly, I kind of find – I find it to be kind of terrible at it at this. But it's it, it's the weirdest thing. The worst Bond is in possibly the best Bond film or, again, at least top five Bond film. Yeah. Top he, uh, three maybe. And I think um, it, it kind of sets the tone for the next couple of decades, um, especially with the skiing. I feel like skiing was always popping up in the James Bond movies. but And this was intended to be yeah. right after Thunderball, but they I guess they had problems finding locations for the snow, you know, all year long trying to deal with the filming. Because this is back when movies would take six to eight months to do, whereas now with digital video and all these CGI things, they, they you know, it's half the time or less. I've, I've heard of movies being shot in a month. I'm like, what? That's insane. But, and this is... Some things with this one is like it's very meta as well, which is weird because it's a very straightforward—not straightforward, but very serious film. Mm -hmm. Except for all the weird random jokes that are made, like uh, in the beginning, in the beginning of the film where we get finally get introduced to Bond, and uh, he kind of loses the girl and all these things. Just kind of stares at the, looks at the camera, like this never happened to the other guy. Yeah. Uh, like, wah, wah. The the one thing that bugs me about the James Bond movies during this era is they always seem to have this one scene. I feel like it was in like four out of the last five movies is James Bond will walk into a big, beautiful living room in some sort of hideout. Uh, and all of a sudden all these beautiful girls come out of nowhere and you're just like, well, hello, nine of you. Oh, I guess you're all going to kick my ass now, huh? And um, Austin Powers does a good job of making fun of that too with the, um, the fembots. Yeah, that... That definitely feels like uh, when when he goes up to the that institute. Yeah, that that that's a kid in the candy store right there for him. Uh, just 12, 12 young beautiful women. <laughs> um, Blofeld uh, is taken over by Telly Savalas, who is a lot more like in the action. Which okay, so I actually have a problem with this. We're, we watched Blofeld now for the last four or five movies, slowly increase his profile in the films. But he does not, to me, seem like the kind of guy that would get into the action. At no point does he want to get his, his hands dirty. That's why he has all these henchmen. He wants to do it. You know, uh, if he, I don't know. I just don't feel like he would get on freaking skis, go down these crazy mountains, and chase after his ass. It doesn't sound like Blofeld to me. Well, this also, I, I might be wrong. This, I might be think, mixing this part up with the other film. But it really feels like by this point, Blofeld is an independent agent. I don't think they actually ever mentioned Spectre, or if they do, it's like a passing reference at the beginning of the film. Oh, so you think he's lost control? Where it's like he's well, he's doing his own. He's like, yeah, I'm the head of Spectre, but 
on the side, I do this. Oh, okay. I hypnotize young women to uh, carry out biological warfare. Yeah, at this point, they're probably tired of dealing with Bond. It's like, look, if you want to do it, you can spend your money and waste all your men. Yeah, yeah and it's – there's <clears throat> uh, yeah, there's so much great stuff in this film, and then there's so many things where you stare – where you get to it, and it's like, wow, that's – wow. Uh, the, the little dinner that they have at the Institute where it's the, – uh, the women are have allergies, and he's – Blofeld is trying to fix their al- – is – claiming that he's cured their allergies and watch what they eat. And it's like the most like, yes, the Asian girl is eating rice. The, uh, the, the Jamaican girl has a banana. The, it's just like, Oh boy. Not the most culturally sensitive. Yeah. You kind of stare at this going like, what? (laughs) Yeah. I, um, what I like about this movie is that it drops a lot of the excess of the previous films. It's kind of lean and mean. And it's before all the silliness would kick in about, you know, seven, eight years later with Moonraker. It's that perfect sweet spot for me. Yeah. This is the, the the first Bond movies that I really started watching was this era. And uh, the action sequences are amazing, especially like just this, the this slalom stuff that he does. And uh, even down to the well, incredibly there's... downbeat ending, which is more like the Bond films now. Yeah. What's funny is I know that ending is coming, and it still looks kind of shocking. Yeah. It's just like, wow, that can't believe they end that film on that. Oh, yeah, and there's, no, there's nothing well, after it. Again, it, ha- it happens, and it's over, and you're just like, son of a bitch, the movie's over? What? Yeah, but then that was also not supposed to be the actual ending. Oh, tell me more, tell me the, more. That was actually, uh, because this is George Lazenby's one and only film, they, uh, and he there was issues all throughout shooting with him. He was kind of a cocky prick. And, uh, aside from that, he, like he, he broke an arm, broke his arm at one point. Uh, like I can do this better than the stunt man. Uh, so he had that, the British tabloids were trashing him like long before the film came out. So, you know, it's kind of, they're already, even though this film did well, they, you know, it's like people are kind of like going, yeah, and this Lazenby guy who's not an actor is doing this and blah, blah, blah. And he was – one of the things that he apparently felt was the Bond films were over because more sophisticated movies were coming out like Easy Rider and The Graduate. Yeah. So he basically kind of told his, his agent he wasn't sure if he was going to come back. So they had shot the this ending – well, not an ending, but they shot shot the death to be the first thing that you see in the next film. That was going to be the beginning of Diamonds Are Forever. Huh. And then when it uh, turns out, oh, we're not going to have this guy coming back. We're going to have to start looking for a new Bond. Let's go and uh, we'll, we'll, we'll take that opening shot that we that we used and we'll just tack it on there and you know shock everybody. Crazy. And Diana Rigg is uh, probably one of the best Bond girls of all time. In fact, I wouldn't call her a Bond girl. Because it's kind of insulting, because uh, she's not there just for being jiggle. Yeah, she, you know, uh, she is a truly great uh, companion yeah. character to James Bond. And a big part of it's just because she doesn't take a shit. You know, she's she's from the beginning just kind of, what are you doing? You know, I, you know, leave me alone. I'm like, I'm gonna, you know, she attempts suicide at the beginning, and then just kind of like, why are you following me? Why are you messing with? me? Leave me alone, you weird little man. (laughs) 
Uh, I'm trying to find it here, but I could have swore that the Timothy Dalton was also in the running to take over James Bond. But I'm looking at all the front runners, and I don't I don't know any of these people. John Richardson, uh, Hans de France, Robert Campbell, Anthony Rogers, and then George Lazenby. So it doesn't seem like it was a really good group of people to choose from. Well, also apparently Adam West was also offered. No, what? <laughs> yeah, I guess he was like a he was a friend of. Uh, Oh, of the, the the original writer. I can't think. Why can't I think of his name? <laughs> uh, well, are you talking about um, Lorenzo Semple? No, L- no, 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 no. Who wrote this? Guy who made Bond. Guy, oh, oh, you mean Ian Fleming? Bond. Are you talking about Ian Fleming? Yes. Oh, I think you're talking. Yes, to he screenwriter. actually knew. Okay. He he actually knew Ian Fleming, and it's like, God, I feel bad. I couldn't even think of the damn dude's name. <laughs> yeah, apparently he knew Fleming, and Fleming liked him enough to uh, to have him uh, be offered up as it's potential Bond, but he didn't want to do it because he felt Bond should be British. Yeah, okay. Well, that happened before, too. Uh, they would do this with uh, James Brolin, I think, in 83 when they thought Roger Moore was going to quit and they cast him. Um, so it's not the first time it happened or the last. But it is strange that they would they would consider anybody who wasn't from the UK or at least Australia. Yeah, and that's it. It's, you know, the idea of trying to cast that role, especially after you have a guy who's done it for six films at this point. Yeah, six films. And it's, everyone thinks of, especially at that point, Connery as Bond. So who are you going to get to fill these shoes? And we got Lazenby. Yeah. Um, he must have been cheaper because the next film, they got, uh, I think it was a record, $1.5 million to get Connery back. Which today, $1.5 million, I think that's what Van Damme gets to be in those low-budget direct-to-video movies. So it doesn't mean as much, but I'll yeah. take well, I'll take $1.5 million for six months of work. Or hell, I'll do it for six years of work. And they also had uh, – this uh, will go with casting again because they had to recast Bond. Apparently, uh, Adam West again, Michael Gambon, Burt Reynolds, no. and Roger Moore. Wait. Michael, was he thinner and better looking at the time? <laughs> I'm assuming so. Pro- probably. Okay. Probably. Burt Reynolds would be like, I'm James Bond. <laughs> Get my car. <laughs> that, that's one. I have a feeling that was that was probably like a five-minute, hey, who's popular? Oh, yeah, that guy. Should we call him? No. no. He's no. going to bring that Dom DeLuise guy with him. <laughs> He'll be Blofeld. <laughs> Oh my god! But Blofeld is replaced again. Um, I, I want to try and remember the guy's name. He played. He was in the uh, Rocky Horror Picture Show. Um, Charles. Uh, uh, yes. Gray. Yeah. He's Charles Gray. Now he plays a kind yeah, of Charles weird. Gray, who's... I think he has more of a humorous, sinister feel. He's not in it as much as uh, Telly Savalas was in the previous one. And I, I just think I find him amusing in that one. Part of it's because his face. He looks like he's always grinning. Yeah, he's he's definitely a l- little bit more. He's, he's a little more like a typical Bond villain than Blofeld. Yeah. So it it's a weird – I kind of feel like it's a weird choice. But this – I ended up actually liking this film more than I remembered. I still like, don't know what it's about though, but it's amusing to no end. And I, I think a lot of it is um, – now Richard Maybaum, he wrote uh, everything from On Her Majesty's Secret Service up through, I want to say, uh, License to Kill – um, so he is really good at the meat and potato stories, you know, just laying the structure that needs to be done. But sometimes they bring in an extra writer, and this time they brought in Tom Mankiewicz, 
who has always been a fun writer. Uh, he wrote the Superman movie. I believe he did Dragnet, you know, the Tom Hanks, um, Dan Aykroyd. He did Delirious with John Candy. Oh, okay. So he, he, I think he's probably responsible for the and more could... eccentric qualities of the film. Yeah, I would, I would feel that from hearing that, it would definitely be he, – he had to have written the stuff for Mr. Witt and Mr. Kidd. Yes. I, those are my favorite, absolutely the best henchmen ever. Um. Oh, what's his Crispin Glover's dad? Um, John Glover? No. Uh, Bruce Glover. Bruce Glover. I don't know the other guy yeah. though. Yeah. Uh, Putter Smith is the other guy's name. That's uh, that's not the name I expected. I don't know him. <laughs> I do. Yeah, I don't recognize the guy from anything, but I just oh man, they're. I love that those that kind of archetype of those two characters that are just constantly re- just referring to each other by their by Mister and the last name. Yes, they're very fancy, and but they're in a relationship, correct? That is what people say. I I'll, I can agree with that. I can see that. But that's all up to – I would say that's all up to the viewer. Yeah. I just – I feel like at least if they're – I like the ambiguous qualities of this film. The only problem is I'm still trying to pin down what the movie's about. Now, this is where you are the best <laughs> because I'm going to step back while you explain what this movie's about. Yes. Okay. <laughs> Very simplified plot summary. Bond traces a diamond smuggling ring back to a still-alive Blofeld, because at the beginning of this film, Bond kills Blofeld. And he's going to use these diamonds to uh, create a laser satellite to, and this is ransom global global nuclear supremacy. (laughs) Basically, he's going to destroy everyone else's nukes, so that you have, you're the only one with nukes. Huh, as best as I can figure that is is the story. Yeah, but along the way, it's it's so much fun. I, my favorite part is the Vegas chunk. Um, I'm fascinated by old Vegas, and it's kind of neat to see it. And then the, the car chase through there, and all the beautiful lights. Um, and I, I think this is the first time they had gone to Vegas. I don't I don't even know if they've ever gone back. I started to think they did, but I was thinking yeah, Con that's... Air. I don't know why I thought Con Air. <laughs> Yeah, that as far as I know, they've never been back to Vegas, which is strange because if you're going to do anything with gambling, why not? Yeah. Um, trying to remember, Jill St. John is another great. Uh, she's silly and she's fun, but she's not stupid. Um, she's a good companion for James Bond. I hate saying Bond girl; it just sounds so sexist. I'm just going to say companion. Is that okay? Yeah. Well, if you're well, yeah, if you want to do that for the the companion woman, because there's always. The, there is a Bond girl, especially in this one. We had plenty of tool. Oh right, right, right. Uh, Lana Wood. Because that's usually that seems yeah. that seems to be the yeah. Those seem to be the ones that are a little more bubble headed and just essentially the disposable girl. Right. And or villainous. In this case, oh, I mean, almost oh yeah, or villainous, but almost immediately because she's she's not in this film for very long. Uh, you think it's weird that Jimmy Dean's in this? Yeah, yeah. Well, there's there's a lot of weirdness in this one too. The the fake moon landing and the moon rover chase oh my through God. the desert. But I forgot that. I just this, completely forgot that. I mean, it's I, I enjoy this film. I think this film has it's odd enough that it actually it, it kind of understand how Honor Magic Secret Service kind of feels like it totally sets up later films. This one definitely 
is a precursor to the silliness that we're going to get in the Roger Moore films. Yeah, um, which is the are the ones that I really because re- this has some weird goofy crap. I just realized somehow along the way we were like right together. Now there's a delay. I hate that. That's the problem with the recording. I'm going to have you shipped up here and we're just going to do all these episodes together. I have all the money in the world because <laughs> I made a gun out of diamonds and uh, I'm going to I'm just going to wipe out all the baseball fields. I don't know what I'm going to do with it. I don't know. I'm going to burn off the nose hairs that are coming out of my I look like spiders are crawling out of each nostril. <laughs> <laughs> we don't even know what to say after that. I went too far. Sorry. Yeah, yeah that that was that that was bond worthy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Shirley Bassey comes back for the theme song, which is uh, honestly one of the best choices. Um, I think it's the, she's the only one really to return. Good, yeah, she's uh, she has three bond uh, bond themes under under her belt. Because she is, you know, she does uh, Goldfinger, this, and Moonraker, if I remember right. Yeah. Uh, biggest box office, I think, of the whole bunch. Um, but he was done. And it was time to move on. He took his money and ran for the hills. Yeah, which is, in a way, I, I would, wouldn't blame him. That's the sort of thing where he just, he got paid an obscene amount, you know, quote-unquote obscene, especially for the time, and was able to, to kind of, I guess close out everything on a higher note. Yeah, it does because, wrap up the yeah. Spectre whole thing, you know, Blofeld storyline. Yeah, because at that point, Blofeld is done. He's gone. We lose. We lose both of those for, I think, until uh, until we get back to uh, what's his name, the, the, our new Bond, Daniel Craig. The first. Yeah, I think I think Daniel Craig's Bond is the first time we actually have Spectre back. Well, that was kind of a big thing back then. They had like Smursh and um, I want to say uh, Get Smart, and then there was the Syndicate and Mission Impossible. People love those weird acronym bad guys back then. No, Chaos. Uh, Chaos was Get oh, Smart. Smursh was in Casino Royale. Oh, that was what was the one in uh, Man from Uncle? Was there not one in Man from Uncle? Oh. Uh... Shoot, I don't know. Yeah, but it seemed like that was a I thing back know. then. The acronyms were huge. Yeah, everyone had to have had to have those those names that spelled out something because someone really had to have, you know, marketing strategy and the time to create these things. Right. Um, all right, so that is it for us here. We'll be back next month with the next four films starting the Roger Moore era. Um, well, hold on, hold on. Do you want to do the Roger Moore era or do you want to do the uh, the copycats? The spoof ones from the 60s. Maybe we should hit the Roger Moore ones and then double back to everything that kind of that got inspired by a little bit later. Okay, so that'll be the next one. We're going to do Live and Let Die, uh, The Man with the Golden Gun, The Spy Who Loved Me, and Moonraker. Oh, I can't wait for Spy Who Loved Me. Definitely one of the best ones. That's another one of the ones I love. All right, check us out on Facebook under Video Night Podcast, and have a good night. Good night, everybody. Hello, fellow Bondians. Is that a thing? I don't know. Uh, Anyway, for this round, I wanted to focus on a different kind of car with just as much significance in automotive history. There were many wonderful cars to choose from, like the Aston Martin DBS, or even the Mercury Cougar from On Her Majesty's Secret Service, or the iconic Ford Mustang from Diamonds Are Forever. But this go-round, I wanted to focus on something that has started to pique my interest as of late. 
and that is great examples of foreign muscle cars. The Merriam-Webster Dictionary defines muscle cars as any of a group of American-made two-door sports cars with powerful engines designed for high-performance driving. Now, I know most people ascribe to this description. However, I argue that there are a few other examples outside the States that even though they may not have high-horsepower V8s under the hood, they have that same appeal. So on that note, this time I am going to Japan with the 67 Toyota 2000 GT. The 2000 GT may be right on the fence and technically considered a sports car, but in my opinion, this is a great example of a foreign muscle car. Right up there with the Skyline and the Celica GT, both of which I really love. They're just quirky and unique enough, to, but muscular enough that, oh man, just gives me chills anytime I hear one start up. The car was produced to go up against the Jaguar E-Type and others of the same caliber. Toyota did a fantastic job with this one. Unfortunately, their goal of 1,000 units per year turned out to be way too expensive, and the production ended before the end of the production year after only 351 units were created. Somewhere around 60 of those made it to the States. And today, perfect examples of these cars can easily go for over a million dollars at auction. And as far as the Bond version of the car, that one is a unique one. Sir Sean Connery, with his 6-foot, 2-inch tall frame, could not fit in this car comfortably, because it was originally a hardtop. The fix? Toyota chopped off the top and made it a convertible. Out of the 351 2000 GTs manufactured, only two were convertibles, and they were built specifically for this film. There are other convertibles out there, but they were built by fans. Also, Bond only drives this car once. The GT actually belongs to Agent Aki, and she is usually behind the wheel. It does actually have a secret communication system hidden behind the seat, complete with a video calling setup. An interesting tidbit of information is that Akiko Wakabayashi, I think I said that right, did not know how to drive. So two of Toyota's racers drove in her stead as stand-ins. The car was powered by a Yamaha-engineered 2-liter dual-overhead cam 6-cylinder, cranking out 148 horsepower. Combined with the vehicle's weight of 2,500 pounds, and 129 foot-pounds of torque, it could reach 0 to 60 times of 10 seconds at 137 miles per hour. This car also had a limited slip differential and power-assisted brakes on all four corners, and this was a first for a Japanese car. Now, if you get a chance to look into this car more deeply, I think you'll be pleasantly surprised. I believe you'll find the same things that I see in it. Um, the fact that it's a superbly designed car, the Japanese did really good on this. And I believe it stands right up there next to the Ferraris and the Porsches of the time. And definitely the Jaguar E-Type. So now I leave you as I did before with a bit of music of the Underhood variety. Until next time, I bid you farewell.
everybody. Welcome to Downloads Are Forever, the James Bondcast. Hey, does this voice sound familiar? But you feel like it was with a different podcast? Well, it was because originally this was called um, uh, For Your Ears Only, a James Bondcast. At the time I named it that, I did not know there were other shows named this. I searched, I swear to you, I searched, and I have found three named that, and one of them is by a friend. I mean, what are the fucking chances that I wouldn't even know a friend had a podcast called that? Ah! And that's really weird, too, because you would think it'd be the most obvious thing to name a podcast, and in searching for it, not finding it. Uh, well, it's because, I mean, here's the reason. I have my podcast uh, search engine, it's called, it's called Podcast Addict. I have it set to recent podcasts. I didn't mean to set it there, but it's only ones that are active. So there is a British one that ended in 2016. So there, that's why I don't know about that one. Um, the other one is auto uh, Audio Erotica. So it's not about James Bond. It is a, I guess, porn <laughs> podcast. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, I don't know. Hmm. And then the third one is because it is a sub-series. Like, you know the way we have Video Night and then we do sub-stuff like Trash Cinema and like this is part of Video Night in a way. Um, his is called Podcasting Them Softly, and that is a sub-series they do. That's why it didn't show up in a, a search engine. Well, that does make sense, then, because if it's not immediately recognizable as its own thing, it's a subset thing, then that's understandable. Yeah. But even so, it, you know, it's like a Google search or something like that really should have popped up immediately with, with at least one of these. It did the second time yeah, when I goodness. when when I didn't I took out the James Bond I just put for your ears only and that's when it brought up the porno one. Um, I'm assuming it's porn. It says audio erotica. I'm assuming it's just two people. Uh, uh, well, it's so, probably like it's, people reading reading the uh, pen, uh, penthouse letters. Oh yeah. It's like you never believe it would happen to me. And then he took out his Walter PPK. <laughs> 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 um. So, Downloads Are Forever, I think, seems to be the most popular one. Uh, give credit to other people out there. Oh, I should say Gene Otis is the one who uh, thought of that one. Um, there was Listen and Let Die um, on Her Majesty's podcast service, which I thought was too it was too much, too wordy. Yeah, it's a, that's definitely a mouthful. The um, That's also in the Audio Erotica podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I immediately regretted saying that. Yeah, um, so yeah, downloads are forever, I think, is what we're going to stick with until someone else probably steals it. I don't even know how you copyright names in podcasts, to tell you the truth. I don't. I usually pick names that are so stupid or so generic, you can't really do it. Like, call it Back in Tunes. Why the hell do I even call it that? It doesn't even make sense. I think it started off as talking about Back in Time, talking about cartoons, and then we just compressed it down to Back in Tunes. And uh, yeah, I don't get a Video night, I'm shocked that no one's taking that, or Trash Cinema, because those seem so obvious. Well, trash cinema would really feels like if you're if anyone would have done that, that would have been trauma. Yeah, you know, and the problem now Maybe. with trash cinema is it did start off with us mocking terrible movies or guilty pleasure films, and now we find ourselves talking about movies that people really love, and we're like, well, now we've kind of moved on to movies that were trashed by the critics and the audience ignored it. So no, technically it's not trash cinema. I don't know what the hell to do with that. So I'm lost. So that's on a hiatus till I figure that one out. <laughs> oh man! But okay. right now, I think we've got uh, 
we've got ourselves a couple movies to talk about. We do. Uh, okay, so this one is um, stepping to the side of the James Bond franchise. What it's about is, in the 60s, the phenomenon of the spy movie and spy TV shows. It just exploded, and they were everywhere on television. You had The Man from U.N.C.L.E., I Spy, Mission Impossible, um, in a way, Wild Wild West. Get Smart, my favorite. You Get Smart. Um, In movies, you know, everybody remembers the TV shows pretty fondly, and they all did very well. In movies, not so much. The series that we're going to discuss today... Um, the only two that were really successful was the In Like Flint series, which there was two of, and for some reason they never did a third one, even though I heard it was very profitable, and the Matt Helm series with Dean Martin, and, uh, there were four of those in a TV, uh, movie. The other ones never really were that successful. There was tons and tons of Eurospy, and when I say Eurospy, it usually means an Italian-German production. It was their version of the Spaghetti Western. So you get, like, one guy from America who's a mild name, and you get a couple British and a couple German and Italian, and get them all together and, and sell them internationally. They were not really meant for American audiences. Yeah, and especially in watching some of these things, you can tell that, uh, aside from, like, well, like the Spaghetti Westerns in general, you have everyone is, they've got dialogue, but then everything is overdubbed anyway. Right, they were shot of So you kind of have this weird disconnect, Yeah. The, um, yeah, this is when the Spaghetti Western was slowly starting to fade. Um, and then who knew that, you know, the, the same year that James Bond broke out with uh, uh, Goldfinger is when we get the Man With No Name trilogy and just kickstarts it all over again. And this time it was mostly, it seemed like it was Italian productions that were taking over the Western instead of American production. Um, and then we had, like, the Hercules movies before that, and those died off. It's funny, the Italians really did a good job of ripping off successful American movies. And and, and talking about trash cinema, my favorites are the late 70s, early 80s, like Mad Max ripoffs and Slash ripoffs and, you know, anything that was popular. Rambo, there's like a thousand Rambo ripoffs. Yeah, see, I... Aside from Italian horror films, I haven't... There isn't a lot of directly Italian... uh, films of this type that I really, really got into. I mean, sure, there's things like Barbarella and, you know, some of the, some of that stuff, but that was never really, really a thing. Granted, yeah. Dilo De Laurentiis turns up in a lot of things that I like. He does, well, he always put more money into it than most people. Most people would do, like, say, uh, American production of a movie uh, would cost about $5 million. Well, the Italians would do it for $500,000. You could always tell the, the cheapness of it. Dio De Laurentiis, he wanted to make big picture. He wanted to play with the big boys. You know, he was like uh, Canon Pictures before Canon Pictures, you know. But his movies were of better quality. Yeah. There's some really good stuff in there. There's also some schlock. I can't say that word, schlock. Well, it's like, well, he's like Roger Corman, you know. It's make, spend, technically, even though he's trying to spend the money, he's at least kind of emphasizes creativity over money. So it's... Yes, this stuff is still lower budget than anything you get out in Hollywood, but he would still be, you know, he'd want the creativity, and that's kind of what we see in one of these films that we're going to talk about a little later. Yeah, you know what, let's actually, I, I changed my mind. <laughs> I like to throw people for a loop. We're talking about Dino De Laurentiis. Let's go ahead and just move into the movie that he did, um, which isn't technically a spy film, but there's so much of that flavor in this. It was actually based on a comic book. It was called Diabolic. The movie's called Danger Diabolic. And it's one of my favorite Italian movies of the 60s. 
And this is when John Philip Law was red hot after playing. I think he played Duran Duran in Barbarella, correct? Yes. Yeah. And, no, wait, wait, wait. No. Oh, God, who does he play? He's not that. And like, crap. Uh, he's, uh, he's the winged angel. I, I, thought, I thought it was Duran Duran. No, no. Okay, well... I'd have to go and do, do yeah. a Google search, but yeah, I feel bad. <laughs> uh, John Philip Law, this is at his peak breakout, and it's funny, the success of Diabolic internationally would carry him for probably another 20 years. I don't think it did very well in America. Um, I don't understand why. It, it's, a, it's a Mystery Science Theater 3000 movie. That's how we watched it. Um, to tell you the truth, I've never seen it outside of the, the Rift version. Um, it looks like a lot of fun, but it's just so much more entertaining with their commentary. Honestly, I disagree. Uh, this film was a boring slog. Really? And I even love with so Mike and the Bots, even uh, with Mike and the Bots uh, added commentary, I just, well, part of me goes, and granted, this is not the, uh, they aren't exactly the same thing. So, you know, when I, when I say this, uh, listeners understand. Yes, I know there's a big difference, but this really makes me think of uh, Lupin the Third from Japan. Yes, totally. Which in itself is based off a of French, uh, a French character, gentleman thief. Which Dio Diabolic isn't necessarily a gentleman thief, but it's still kind of a same, a similar kind of concept where thief goes out and does things, and you have the police inspector, you know, trying to catch him, you know. Granted, I'm not sure for the comic. I'm sure that there's a little more world world traveling stuff in that, which is the same thing that goes with the Lupin film, uh, Lupin series. But uh, it kind of seemed like this was a not good version of that, even though they are kind of contemporaries in uh, in their creation. I just realized that uh, the Italians and the French are way ahead of us on making movies adapted from comic books. I mean, it took America forever to take do them seriously. And even back then, you know, when they had, like, serials and a couple small Superman movies, it wasn't until the 78 Superman that they embraced superhero movies. But, man, they, I, and Barbarella is a comic, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's they, – they took these things as seriously as you could, whereas, yeah, it took till uh, Richard Donner to actually do Superman justice. I mean, you sure, you had the Fleischer cartoons and things like that, but still – it was still kind of, you know, I mean, I'm not not say campy in the sense of how Batman 66 was campy, mm -hmm. but still kind of in like that. Right. You know, well, wasn't... I mean, their aesthetics, especially the later De Laurentiis movies, not all of them comic book movies, but they had a very pulpy quality to them, a tongue-in-cheek quality. I mean, look at Conan, look at Flash Gordon, even his King Kong has a pulpy, lurid, uh, almost goofy quality to it. And one of the first things is I was never really that knowledgeable of Diabolique, but it really cemented the fact because I had heard I had heard this and now seeing this film, uh, it did kind of cement the fact that he is like the primary uh, inspiration for the Marvel character Phantom X. I mean, almost exactly with the, uh, especially with the aesthetic, the design of like his weird gimp suit, uh, even though his is black and the other guy's is yeah. white, but Wait, which character did you say? I swear you said Phantom Mask. Phantom X. Oh, Phantom X. See, I don't He's know. A, oh, oh, yes, I do. Yeah. Never mind. That's an X-Men world character, right? Yeah. I was thinking, yeah, see, uh, this whole more, time, I was thinking of Danger Girl. Did you ever read Danger Girl? I read a little bit of it, but it never really, I 
not that well versed in okay. major girls. There is a character in that, and it's kind of a James Bond spoof, but it puts the girls in charge. Um, it's, it's, it's like, okay, so it's taking um, an old sailor kind of guy who's actually an old spy, but he looks just like Sean Connery. And then he has these three girls, which are basically the Charlie's Angels now doing all these crazy missions. But then they have this one dude who's super mega hot, and he looks a lot like John Philip Law, but he dresses just like Diabolic. Diabolic. And um, I, I had to have been intentional, because it looks like uh, J. Scott Campbell was in love with the Euro Spies. Oh, it wouldn't surprise me if that's the case, because even though it's like, yeah, I'm not as familiar with that, it's definitely something that, you know, has its following. It's like Hell, it's like Tintin. You know, it's like I'm not overly versed in Tintin, but I'm at least conscious of the existence of it. And it's something like the uh, Diabolic. It's if you enjoy these things, it's definitely going to creep into stuff that we're familiar with, but maybe not necessarily had known even at the time what yeah. its inspiration was. There's so many comics that um, are massive over there that have never broken over here. I mean, Asterix and Obelisk. That's huge, but I, I couldn't tell anybody here knows it. Yeah, I've never read it, but I have seen one of the films. Oh, yeah? Is it good? Yeah, it was pretty funny. And right. if I remember right, it had... Uh, oh, God. Gerard uh, Depardieu. Yeah, Gerard Depardieu. I'm trying to think of... Monica Bellucci was in it. Ooh, hello. One of them. And, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, just, if I remember right, she was playing Cleopatra. Uh, Danger Diabolic, yeah. So it's basically like he's a bad guy and he's in a world with much worse bad guys. But he's, like you say, he's a gem, ge, a gentleman criminal. I, I just love the set pieces, um, the, the design work. John Philip Law is can't, he's not a good actor. He's not. He's, I know people love him, but he's not. And I think it's funny is there's another Mystery Science Theater episode with John Philip Law called Space Mutiny, where he repeats that same uh, diabolic laugh. That's so iconic in this, over and over. We're like, yeah, we got it. This is the end of your career, huh? <laughs> <laughs> uh, the thing that tripped me out about this was the fact that this was directed by Mario Baba. Yeah. Yeah, I was a surprise. It's one like, of his mainstream, pulpy, uh, I think one of his only, right? Because most of the time, didn't he do one right before this, though, that was kind of elaborate? I mean, it was a horror movie, but it was like more spacey, with Planet of the Vampires or something like that? Yeah, I'd have, I'd have to look up look up his uh, filmography, but... Uh, so I did look at it at one point. I didn't commit, commit it to memory for this, unfortunately. But I was sitting there going like, going, Mario Bava, I know it. Oh, yeah. You know, I'm just sitting there going, that's right. You know, going, yes, I've seen a good number of his horror films. I never knew this. But then it's kind of like also uh, Takashi Miike. It's, oh, yeah, all these really, really horrible, you know, graphically violent movies. And then he has a couple of kids movies. Oh, really? I didn't know that. <laughs> Yeah, it, they're still weird and twisted, but they're not as weird and twisted. Yeah. Um, do you remember when they used footage of this in Body Movin' by the Beastie Boys? No. There is God. a music video with the Beastie Boys. He did it right after Intergalactic, where it's basically Mike D is trying to uh, sneak into this old castle to steal a recipe for, I think I want to say it was biscuits and gravy or something like that. And they use tons of footage from Danger Diabolic, and then they cut in with them in the costumes or whatever. It's very campy. It's very silly, and it's one of my favorite Beastie Boys songs. I'm going to have to see that video again. It's been years. I, I always come across Intergalactic. Yeah. But, yeah, it's like it's been a while since I've seen Body Movement. Um, yeah, that's the only thing that, that's really, really stuck in my head is when that came out. I was like, what is this movie? Because I had not seen it yet. 
And then it was the next year is when they did the season, the series finale at that time of Mystery Science Theater 3000. Is it weird that we now have shows repeating or coming back after like long, long chunks of time and they're funded by the fans? That's great. Yeah. And that, yeah, because in watching that episode, I didn't realize that was the finale. And it's, I'm suddenly going, it's not going to be, that's, they're not going to end it. They'll, you know, it'll reset like all TV shows do. Nope, that was that was it. Yep, ninety nine, and then we had to wait till twenty sixteen, I think twenty seventeen. No, it's twenty sixteen for seventeen. Yeah, that's a long gap. Uh, but this isn't that isn't about Euro spies. But okay, so now back yeah. to the proper order of things. Um, in like Flint, I think is the best of the inspired spoofs. It's not a straight up spy movie, uh, or you know, like a, a, a drama. Like okay, so I want to say this. I tried watching the Harry Palmer series on Michael Caine. The dead serious, super dry um, alternative to the excess of the Bond movies. It is boring as hell. I know people love that series. I couldn't get through it. You know what? I, I in preparing this, I was sitting there coming in, going, "Yeah, I know. I've seen seen the uh, the Flint movies. That's the ones with Michael Caine." Oh. And then I was, yeah, I was wrong. I had seen those ones, and I have never seen. I've never actually seen the Flint movie. Well, you know how and the Bourne Identity was, was like the juxtaposition to the Pierce Brosnan Bond, so they're more serious, more uh, you know, shaky cam, stuff like that, you know, the meatier version of it all. I mean, that's what Harry Palmer oh, was yeah. to the Bond series back then. They were dead serious and not a lot of action, just a lot of talking and real spy intrigue. If you want something that's more authentic, sure, go with that. If you want something fun, go with these. <laughs> Well, it's like I, I didn't particularly like this movie. However, this is kind of what I would have wanted uh, Casino Royale to have been. Yeah. Oh my God, that's still a confusing, confounding film. Um, I just feel like James Coburn it's, is having so much fun doing this film. Well, please, James Coburn truly does look like he can kick anybody's ass in this. But and this kind of bugged me. He is, and I hate this. I really hate this term. I really, really do. But he's a total Mary Sue character. I don't because know. What does that he, mean? You know, Andrew's do, always dropping that on me, oh, but I never ask him what that means. It's essentially a character who can is good at everything. Doesn't matter what it is, that character can do it. It's yeah, usually but a, he's a spoof. applied to a woman. He's a spoof of it. Well, it it's not an obvious spoof, um, but it's kind of tongue-in-cheek, just a little bit step beyond reality because he's kind of poking at fun at James Bond, but it's still a legit spy well, movie. It's, well, it's like this, and in Silencers, really, there's uh, everything just kind of happens to this character, as opposed to them actually having to do something. True, or he the does case, his, uh, like James Bond has to go and do the work. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This uh, he immediately knows just by smell the uh, the chemical, you know, the the ingredient composition in the exact quantities of this bouillon base. So he. No, and he knows exactly where they make this thing. So he has, so he goes to these different restaurants, and just by smell, you know, it's like in and out, trying to find the right place. It's it is silly, you know. It, we can tell that this is humorous, but it's kind of like this. No, but no. I, I don't know. I, I feel like both movies are a lot of fun. They're, they're, they spent a lot of money on them too. They look gorgeous. The the prints on them have oh, been cleaned this, up. Yes, this has this definitely has money, and this. There's there's creativity like the dude had it also it's one of these films where I love seeing 
all these gadgets yeah. that we now have. So in, many gadgets in, in this one. Like, I didn't even realize that, that like, by this what? point, James Bond wasn't even close to how many gadgets that Flint had. Well, it's also, he has a ring doorbell. You know, the ring brand where you can, on your phone, see who's at your doorbell. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, it's all these weird things where I'm like, like, you know, you watch anything where they kind of speculate what will happen in the future. And I'm going, wow, this movie called a couple of things. My favorite gadget is the uh, the fact that he can put himself under like some sort of coma level. They think he's dead. And uh, he has that little thing that pops out with a little ding, 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 ding to get his pulse going again. I was like, that's a cool little – I mean, it's not really yeah. elaborate, but it's just neat that they uh, thought of something that goofy. My, I was watching. I was watching most of these with my girlfriend, and that's one of. She she thought. Uh, she just kind of thought Cobra was a douche in the entire film, but she loved that gadget. That <laughs> he loved. So it's just just how clever that is. Uh, and a lot of this was picked up yeah. for the Austin Powers series, uh, especially like the fact that he walks past those two spies and realizes that they're undercover. And it's like, hey, how did you know? He's like, <laughs> I just kept thinking about Austin Powers when he's like. It's a man, baby! And he's like, that's my mother! <laughs> oh, no, it's the the one thing I, I said, I straight said out loud was, uh, when he fights Hans Gruber in the uh, in the bathroom, I was going, who does number two work for? <laughs> and the phone? The phone in there has the ringtone they use in Austin Powers? I'm trying to think, isn't there the scene where... They go in and uh, beat up those two people that look nothing like them, uh, Mike Myers and Elizabeth Hurley, and they get their costumes and it fits perfectly. That's also picked up from In Like Flint. Yeah, there's there's a lot of lot of stuff that from this film in particular that they stole for Austin Powers, which it's like I said, there's there's things in this I don't I didn't mind. It just kind of went. It's too easy for this guy. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, okay, so there's this movie, but um, oh. the second one, I can't, I, I didn't get around to watch that one, but I feel like that one um, is even better. What I like is that his boss, Lee J. Cobb, um, unlike the Bond films, is kind of confounded by his behavior and frustrated sometimes. You know, he's like the precursor to the hot-headed uh, captain in all the cop movies of the 70s and 80s. Yes, because he is very much a, I don't play by your rules, <laughs> and it's, play by your rules. Play by our rules. <laughs> and it's like no. The uh, the other spoofs oh, we oh. had after this, it took a while. It seems to do straight up spoofs, um, you know, airplane style spoofs. We had uh, Johnny English, which the third one's coming out here in a couple weeks. Which I'm shocked that they're even putting the third one in theaters because they don't make money in America. They just don't. Yeah, and it's it was surprising like how long it took them to do the second one, and even now it's not as long between the two films, but. How it's old like, is he? He's like got to be pushing seventy. Yeah. Although I do like the fact that uh, to go back to Get Smart and uh, kind of the uh, Get Smart film. Oh yeah. Is the with is basically a remake of an English. And much more enjoyable. I I thought for some reason something I like Rowan Atkinson. I really love Bean. I love uh, his TV show The Thin Blue Line, which was a parody of cop TV shows. I think by the time that oh, he's he had, great in. Uh, Sorry, oh, we God, over Black Adder. It's amazing. Oh, yeah, Black Adder. How did I forget that? But um, when it came to Johnny English, I feel like he came about a decade too late. Most of those jokes had been tired and overused, and we'd already seen it in Austin Powers. So by the time he did it, it was just like, so what? Yeah, and it's it was, it's. 
I know I've seen the film. It's never really, aside from the basics of the plot, it hasn't stuck that much with me, which is kind of a shame because, yes, it's, Rowan Atkinson is great, but not everything he does is great. Yeah. I, um, I'm trying to think. There was uh, – what's that kid one? It was a parody of the Bond movies, but with the kid. Cody Banks? Oh, Cody never, Banks. Yeah. yeah. I never saw those, but those were successful. I, don't, I guess Frankie Mina's just aged out of that one. Oh, very much so. He's but he made he made so much money that he doesn't ever have to actually work again. So yeah, well, you know, he, he has a brain injury. He he can't remember being in. He doesn't remember Malcolm in the Middle. He doesn't remember those movies. He doesn't remember any of it. Oh, never didn't hear that. Yeah, it's something. Wow. I don't know if it happened when he was car racing or what exactly happened, but he has something wrong with him that he can't remember, like the first twenty five years of his life. Oof, that that's just harsh. Yeah. I mean. I mean, he's a good. He's a good actor. I mean, it'd be nice to see him come back, but if if there's something that's also limiting him, yeah, he may not be able to remember lines at all. I don't know. Well, that took us down. That's yeah, to a yeah. downer. Sorry. Um, <laughs> the other parody that no one really seems to talk about, maybe because it's a foreign film and uh, people don't like reading subtitles because they're lazy, is OSS one one seven. There's two of them. There's actually. I believe there was three of them back in the 60s that were straight up uh, legit Euro spy films. They were based on the novels. And uh, in 2009, I think it was the first one with, uh, I can't remember his name, Jean Dordon or something like that. Something like that, yeah. yeah. I've, I've seen, uh, there's like two of those ones which are more parodies than actual straight, straightforward spy films. And I know I've seen the second one, which is uh, like, Escape to Rio, you know, something with Rio. Yeah. Uh, and I know I've seen it, but, but it shows if him. you quiz me about it. Yeah. What I love about it is that he's a buffoon, he's an idiot, he's even racist. He is like an anti-hero to the max. Yeah, and the whole, and the whole point of it is every, everyone's kind of calling him on it. It's silly version of they tried to do with uh, Bond in the 90s. Yeah. Uh, you know what I just forgot about? I forgot that uh, uh, Sasha Baron Cohen made a spy spoof a few years ago, which I thought had potential, but it was so over-the-top disgusting that it just kept taking me out of it. What the hell is that called? Grimsby? Grimsby? Oh, yeah. Brothers Grim, uh, Grimsby. Yeah. There's stuff in it that's funny, but yeah, it's you have to really like Sasha Baron Cohen if you're going to watch that. Yeah, the, the part where the, the it's definitely the, not for anyone. But what was it? Elephant fucking that scene just. I was like, oh, okay, now they have a giant penis. Oh, and it's shooting jizz everywhere. Great. <laughs> yeah, I, it's like I like maybe about half of that film, and it's mostly any, mostly the stuff with uh, Mark Strong. Yeah, more so than anything else. Um, another parody of the 60s, which was also based on a pulp novel, was the Matt Helm series. And I've read the Matt Helm books. I used to be a big pulp reader. And when you go from that to the movies, you have to go, uh, what? What did just happen here? These were dead serious pulpy novels. And um, like The Destroyer, they were very similar to Remo Williams' The Destroyer. But then you get Matt Helm with Dean Martin, and he's basically just like, How's it going, baby? Ah, I'm going to sleep with someone every five minutes and get drunk. I mean, you can see, I mean, his drunken persona basically takes over this movie. Yes, it, it is. I don't want to stretch it much, but it seems like almost every five minutes he's got a drink in his hand. Yeah, he's very casual spy. I don't even know why they even hire him. It's just like, whatever, I'll be there when I'm there, darling. <laughs> yeah, it's, 
I mean, it's not like say uh, in in Flint where he, you know, Flint doesn't want to do it, but at least uh, he takes on the mission because he has, uh, you know, someone tries to kill him, so he's got a personal stake now into it. And in this, just kind of like, eh, whatever. All right. And you think it's bad in this one? I've seen all I four of them. I did kind of like and cringe. Yeah, all four of them um, I've seen, and they get progressively oh. lazier and lazier, and the budget drops lower and lower. And by the time he gets to part four, he's just like, can you just do a stuntman? I'll just show up for like one day. Yeah. It, this is, although I will say this, plot-wise... This is a little bit closer to a Bond film like Flint was. It is. You know, there's there's an actual, like, the terrorist organization that's going to, you know, start, basically jumpstart World War Three. I mean, their plan is terrible, and they have, I mean, outside of uh, Sean Connery's Bond, you have one of the most, uh, like, yeah, this guy, uh, Sean Connery's Bond, Sean Connery's Bond playing an Asian, you have the uh, what's his uh, Victor uh, Bono as oh god I forgot about that it, uh, holy shit Tung Su who's just like oh god <laughs> this is so racist oh I mean, that fucked mostly me up because I, I I hadn't seen it in like fifteen to... years and I was like oh oh no 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 yeah and I mean I mean kudos to him for not really trying to put on an Asian accent. But <laughs> still. I'm trying to remember. Oh, Carl Malden is the bad guy in the second one. I believe. No, Stella Stevens is in this one. Hubba hubba. Um, but uh, Carl yeah. Malden is the villain in the second one. I can't remember who is the the girl in the second one. But uh, Victor. Oh, yeah. Victor Bono's our bad guy. Yeah, Stella Stevens and uh, Dahlia uh, Lavi. Yeah. Who actually, you know what? I'm sorry. Dahlia Lavi. Little more so than uh, than Stella Stevens. Yeah, I think there's some fun stuff in this, and I know in the early '70s, after Dean Martin gave up the rights to the Matt Helm series, um, that they were, they tried to launch it as a serious crime TV show, and they did one movie, and it didn't take. But I watched it because they they play it sometimes on those like um, Stars Channel, Stars Action, and it's much much closer to the book. It just for whatever reason, the the lead was boring as hell, and the budget was really tight, so you don't get to see a lot of fun stuff. But I, they've tried relaunching after Born um, blew up. They tried getting the rights going, and it just nobody's nobody's made it as a movie. I think I think DreamWorks has it right now, but DreamWorks is almost a dead studio. Yeah. Oh, I does have a great uh, little car stunt where they're. Where they're doing the little car chase, where the bad guys are trying to uh, crash him, crash into him, and uh, kill him. Mm-hmm. I really did like, I did like those car stunts. I thought that was actually pretty well done. There was one that was kind of stupid. Didn't I'm trying to remember if it was this one where he's on a bed and it's on like rails and it goes to dump them in acid or something stupid. I can't remember. Well, well no, not acid. It's uh, it's his uh, it's his wake up bed where he just kind of goes up and then uh, drops him into his pool, oh. which has got bubbles in it. Huh, I may have to think of something else. Then. And pretty women. Um, yeah, his uh, his pretty uh, his pretty sister Lovey craves it. Yo, come on! You see, Which, I mean, yes, it is a parody, I, but I half, oh boy, I half loved that name, but I half cringed when I heard that the first time. 
My favorite joke in it uh, is when he's in the car and he's listening to music and it's Frank Sinatra and he's like, no one wants to hear that, bum. Yeah, and then it, well, it pops over to him and it's, oh yeah, here's a good song. <laughs> Um, so yeah, it's up to you to check those out. I say by the time you get to Wrecking Crew, which is the fourth one, it's so lazy that I would just skip it. It would be nice though if, um, it's out of print now, but the four film set seems like the kind of thing that they could budget line, you know, just do all four for 10 bucks. I I feel like a lot of these older films pre-19, well, pre-Star Wars are completely ignored and, and nobody puts them out anymore for people to find. It's kind of disappointing. Yeah, it. There's, there should be a – once uh, the next Bond film comes out, really people should kind of capitalize on that uh, and kind of put out some of, the, some of these films again and just be like, hey, remember remember how much you like these ones? Well, check <laughs> out us making fun of them back in yeah. the 60s. Or remember when spy movies were actually fun. Jeez. Yes. We actually could enjoy these yeah. – enjoy our misogyny. <laughs> <laughs> The uh, the next one is this whole list was actually curated by my friend Will Varro, who is like the king of this era when it comes to film. He even writes books about detectives and spies in the fifties and sixties. And uh, Will Varro, check out his stuff. And um, he helped me curate this list. So he suggested Deadlier Than the Male, and that was kind of on my radar. I was going to do Fathom with Raquel Welch. Um, so maybe sometime I'll, I'll go watch that again. But th- this is the one that he suggested. And let me tell you right now, I have severe ADD, and it's hard for me to pay attention to movies. So I found myself about halfway through this movie kind of coasting off. Um, I can't even remember what it's about. Uh, I remember the end, which is awesome, with the giant chess piece that moves around. And if you get get taken out, you fall through it and die. Um, I think John Gavin is the star of this, who was in Bulldog Drummond. Uh, That's all I remember. You you, you can probably take this uh, one. Richard Johnson. Richard yeah, Johnson. Richard Johnson actually was in this. Okay, why do you think it was Richard Johnson? Uh, he was actually, he was actually director Terrence Young's first choice to play Bond in Doctor No. Nice. Which I can, which I can see, except I don't think he's that good of an actor. I think Sean Connery was a better choice as an actor. Yeah, I mean he he does have like, that look I, though. Yeah, it's like I totally get it. And also, uh, Sylvia uh, Cosina, who plays Penelope, the one of the female assassins. Uh, she was supposed to be up for Tatiana in uh, For Much With Love. Oh, okay. So you have, you definitely have a Bond connection to this film. But yeah, it's, I liked this one. I, I know, I've been speaking to you a little bit before this, you didn't, again, with, didn't particularly like this one. But uh, this, this one was a little bit more straightforward spy movie stuff. There's actually, our character's actually doing stuff. It basically has to do with, uh, uh, Drummond, Bulldog Drummond gets uh, called, uh, kind of kind of falls into this case because a friend of his gets killed, in which uh, some uh, mysterious individuals are trying to uh, not necessarily steal the oil of this uh, made-up Middle Eastern country, but get the rights to to process it, whereas the, the current king wants to process it process it himself, and so through assassination attempt. Uh, there's assassination attempts and stuff. They're putting themselves into this position to make all the money off this oil. Huh. Kind of like the plot of Solo. If you think about it, stealing those uh, fuel crystals, or whatever, and getting processed. <laughs> yeah, it's like make find find a way. You know what makes the money, and essentially be the person to make that money. It's. I mean, this this film is 
is silly, not not in a goofy sense. It's kind of just things happen in a way that if you ha- apply any real logic to it, you it wouldn't go through. Like uh, basically, our our two female assassins are killing off these oil people who are kind of blocking their attempts to get into this proper position to get the oil. And it's like, you know, one day, oh, we, it's like, yes, you have the chance to get this, but uh, we're deadlocked and we're not going to let you. Okay. She goes off, kills, kills one of the people who are against, against her uh, getting into the position where she can get the oil fields and comes back the next day. And it's like, Oh, that guy has apparently died. Isn't that a shame? Let's vote again. Huh. I didn't realize there was a sequel to this. Some Girls Do is a sequel. Huh. Ralph yeah, Thomas. I'm looking at something. After seeing this, I I really want to see that now. Oh, I have to say, best things in all these films is the opening assassination in Deadlier Than the Male. That cigar, basically cigar oh, gun. Right, is right, awesome. yeah. I feel like I, I did something bad to this movie by not paying attention. Like, I just insulted it. And I just, I, I hate the fact that I have such a short attention span. And that now I have a smartphone. Fucking smartphones, man. They just, like, the second you're like, I'm going to go look this up. I'm going to look this up. <laughs> and then you find yourself, oh, half the movie's over. Son of a bitch. Do I want to rewind it? Nah. Well, well, there is a big problem in this film in that uh, Bulldog's dopey American nephew. He, he basically exists to take the plot and slam it right into a brick wall. <laughs> like he, he gets, he has things to do in the plot. He moves the plot forward in some cases, but basically his existence is completely annoying and frustrating. And yeah, I, I guess the reason just, he's in the film I was looking this up is because he was a universal contract player. They wanted to wrap up their contract with them. And they had a deal with the studio said, Hey, we'll finance this. If you put an American actor in it and that's how he ended up in it. Yeah. It, which makes sense. He just feels like an addition, not a part of the plot. Okay, so this is weird. I'm looking at the director here because I had never heard of Ralph Thomas. He's mostly just exclusively British productions. He did a movie a couple years later with Elkie Summer, who's also in this film. Um, he called Percy. And the plot is, I shit you not, Edwin is innocent. A shy young man is hit by a nude man falling from a high-rise building while carrying a chandelier. Edwin Edwin's penis is mutilated in the accident and has to be amputated. The falling man is killed. Edwin becomes the recipient of the world's first penis transplant. He receives the very large penis of the womanizer killed in the same accident. With his new bit of anatomy, Edwin follows the womanizer's steps, meeting all the women he that all meeting all of his women friends before happily settling with the donor's mistreated widow. What the fuck? It was so successful. There was a sequel. You're the, you're reading this thing off. I'm just going. Are you are you on Pornhub right now? <laughs> well, something. Oh my god. This, <laughs> oh my god. Oh my god. The sequel is called Percy's Progress, and the subtitle was "It's not that size. It's not the size that counts." <laughs> oh god. My, that's crazy. <sighs> Written by Raymond Hitchcock. Yeah. I wonder if he's related. No. Okay. I hope not only for the legacy of Alfred's sake. <laughs> I know. I was just like shocked by that one. <laughs> um, so I, I kind of hit the end of this uh, episode. It's a little bit shorter than usual. Um, covering the whole 
spy world. There's a lot to cover. I'm sure we missed a lot. Um, there's a couple in the 90s I want to discuss, but I want to wait till we get to that era because there's a gap that needed to be filled between Timothy Dalton's era of Bond and Brosnan taking over. Are there any other from this era that you uh, you want to discuss? Uh, no, I think I think especially with big thing do cover a decent amount of what exists for this genre. Yeah. Because you have, you have two things that are definitely parodies, but at least are a little more serious than, like, Casino Royale's madcap nonsense. And then you have two that, well, one that's uh, definitely inspired by, but not necessarily is a spy film, and one that is a film that is like Bond. Yeah. The um, there's one I want to mention real so quickly got... because it was also on Mystery Science Theater. It was called so many different names. I want to I'm going to say it's called OK Thunderball, Operation Thunderball, OK Connery, OK Kid Connery, OK uh, 007, Operation 007. They convinced uh, apparently they didn't have to try very hard to convince Sean Connery's brother to appear in a ripoff of the James Bond movies, and it actually got American distribution. Based on the Connery name, and apparently he was a shitty actor, and it's a terrible movie. I can't remember it at all. I kind of want to see that now. Yeah, it only watches well, the Mystery Science Theater. It just sounds like it's a garbage fire. I have to see it. Yeah, it does. And I remember there's one. It was a Japanese one. I want to say I'm pretty sure it's Japanese. That was used in Woody Allen's first movie. What the hell is that called? You know the one where he dubs oh, it? Oh, uh, Key of yeah, Key of Keys uh, was the original film. Yeah, because that's. Uh, the girls in uh, in that other Bond film, the Japanese girls. Oh, oh what's up, uh, Tiger Lily? Is that they what it's were called? in that that same film. Yeah, the the yeah the Woody Allen version. Yeah, okay. What's up, Tiger Lily? Okay, I thought we were going short, but I just looked at the time counter here. We're at forty five minutes, so it's not that much shorter than usual. Okay, so um, we'll be back with the next episode where we're going to jump into the Roger Moore era, and I think that's kind of my era. That's where I really started watching those as a kid on television. Um, I know they're not as good as the Connerys, but my affection for them, because I saw them as a kid, is much, much higher. And I, I've seen them so many times that they're easier for me to get through. Um, so we'll be back next month with those. And sorry, there's no additional piece. Usually we end our episodes with a uh, – my friend Ron will step in for like 10 minutes and give you details on the vehicles in each movie. Uh, this month he won't be able to do those, and uh, we'll be back next month with that. Check us out on Facebook under Video Nights. And, um, John, I guess, tell them goodbye. <laughs> Listeners, you have yourselves a good evening. See you tomorrow, sweetie. Ah.